0: Welcome, everybody, to the February 20th, 2021 edition of the Saturday Free School for Philosophy and Black Liberation. We're very excited today to present to you a special program marking the 153rd uh, birth anniversary of the great uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, who's a foundational thinker for us at the Saturday Free School. Uh, Today's program will consist of... uh, several parts, we'll begin with some historical tributes from around the world to W.E.B. Du Bois, then move into some presentations by uh, PhD students about the impact of Du Bois on their uh, social science research as well as hear from some friends from around the world and then we'll be moving into an open discussion. to start off our program, I'd like to ask uh, Dr. Anthony Montero to please share some remarks.
1: Thanks a lot, Johan, and good morning to everybody and happy uh, W.E.B. Du Bois' birthday. A little early, his birthday is uh, February 23rd, 23rd, I'm sorry. And he was born 153 years ago. Uh, And of course, uh, three years ago, around this very time, we were beginning the year of Du Bois here in Philadelphia, an entire year devoted to commemorating the 150th anniversary of the birth of W.E.B Du Bois. And and so uh, for the free school and for the Organization for Positive Peace, the Lotus Collective, the W.E.B Du Bois James Baldwin Reading Group, and other uh, associated uh, movements and organizations around Philadelphia and hopefully beyond Philadelphia, Du Bois is a, as you said, uh, Jahan, a central and foundational thinker. For us, he is a singular figure in modern thought. Uh, He, cannot be easily dismissed although the ruling elite assisted uh, by its allies in the academy and in the broad intellectual political life of this country have done everything they can to erase him, to diminish him, to make of him something he never was and to smear him, Uh, however, For us, again, he is critical of, and let me just kind of put it in in some historical perspective. You know, uh, Marx and Marxism up until the Russian revolution was not a material force in the lives of humanity of in the lives of the working class uh, it was only with the Russian Revolution and Lenin's reinterpretation of Marx, that Marxism becomes uh, this great force, a uh, global force in human history. I would argue the same situation exists today with Du Bois. Uh, du Bois is in this time, in many ways, what Lenin was in the beginning of the 20th century. Du Bois explains the world uh, and its transformations in the period after the Russian Revolution and after World War II. Uh, And it is not just that he understood the. Uh, colonial question, but as he put it, he understood that the darker races of Africa and Asia would become the driving force of human history. And so in the 21st century, we see that manifesting itself of the rise of Asia, the rise of the Afro-Asiatic world, the non-aligned movement, And so it is Du Bois who foresaw this, but more than foreseeing it, he was able to understand that the axis of human history in order for humanity to move forward must shift from the epoch of Europe to the epoch of humanity, from the centrality of Europe to the centrality of humanity, which does not exclude Europe. Uh, I would go so far as to say that perhaps the free school is the single organization in the United States and uh, pretty much in the world who see Du Bois as the seminal grounding and fundamental thinker in explaining the world that transitions from the epoch of Europe. We take Du Bois very seriously. The crisis that we now confront, an existential crisis of the American political economic system, This crisis is irreversible. It will not ever be the nation, the society, will not ever be what it was in the 50s and 60s. It will never be that again. And so the question is, what is the future of this society? And of course, there are those who believe that all that is required is quote, activism, let us go to the streets, let us march. But there's never been a revolution that is not guided by great ideas. There's never been a political movement that is radical and revolutionary, that is not guided by philosophy and ideology and by people committed to knowledge on a principled basis. And so we reject all of the um, academic uh, machinations, and uh, sometimes it's difficult for me to have the right words to talk about the unprincipledness of academia, uh, as Du Bois spoke about the talented 10th in 1948 they are consumed by universal selfishness. And it is difficult to express anything but utter contempt for them, especially in their engagements with Du Bois. Uh, But nonetheless, the fight for Du Bois and the revolutionary heritage and legacy that he represents demands that we engage and challenge the unprincipledness of academia, uh, of their piddling, of their uh, uh, reactionary, unprincipled alliance with the enemies of humanity so that they can get paid, can get tenure, can get books published. But that's not what we are doing. And as is always the case. You know, for most of them, Du Bois doesn't matter. For most activists, Du Bois doesn't matter. But he doesn't matter until he does matter. And we're just at that time where growing numbers of people, especially young people, are aware of the fact that we cannot move forward unless there are great ideas, unless there is philosophy unless there are methods which help us to discover the truth, unless we are connected to a long heritage of revolutionary ideas, going back to the Haitian and French revolutions, up to the Russian Revolution. And now this period, we are building upon this great heritage of India, India's anti-colonial struggle of the Chinese revolution, of the great resistance of the people of Korea and Vietnam, of the African independence movement. And thus in embracing Du Bois for us, we are embracing the methodology and the philosophy, which is capable of helping us to bring into being, A new synthesis, a new synthesis that explains the world in order to change the world. And I'd like to just end with a quote from Du Bois that we have in the Free School quoted and read many, many times. And it comes from an essay that was first a speech that Du Bois gave on the 20th anniversary of his graduation from Fisk University in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, Fisk was and is a historically black university and a very historic place. Uh, It was the 20th anniversary of his graduation, and he was invited back to give the valedictory speech, and he did. And in it, Uh, he talks about Galileo, the great scientist, who in the face of opposition from the Pope, which was then literally the government of Europe, uh, concerning whether the earth uh, rotated around the sun or was it the opposite? The church said unscientifically it was the opposite. And when confronted by the powerful, Galileo retreated and renounced his own scientific discoveries. And in response to Galileo's cowardice, Du Bois writes, and I quote, science is a great and worthy mistress, but there is one greater and that is humanity, which science serves. So on occasion of Du Bois' 150th birth, we recommit ourselves, not just to science, but to humanity.
0: Thank you. And uh, speaking of the, the, the kind of significance of Du Bois, our first uh, historical tribute is an example of that. Uh, it is a tribute uh, which was broadcast on Ghana Broadcasting Corporation, a speech by uh, the great Kwame Nkrumah, the uh, leader of the independence movement of Ghana and its first uh, leader uh, during its independence. And uh, this was delivered a few months after Du Bois's death. This is delivered in October 1963. Du Bois had died in August 1963 in Ghana itself. And uh, in, in this speech, will go into some details as well about his relationship to Du Bois and how Du Bois came to Ghana and the kind of respect with which Du Bois was held in Ghana, where he actually received a state funeral uh, after his death.
2: We mourn the death of Dr. William Edward Bogart Du Bois a great son of Africa. Dr. Du Bois, in a long lifespan of 96 years, achieved distinction as a poet, historian, and a sociologist. He was an undaunted fighter for the emancipation of colonial and oppressed people and pursued this objective throughout his life. The fields of literature and science were enriched by his profound and second scholarship, a brilliant literary talent, and a keen and penetrating mind. The essential quality of Dr. Du Bois' life and achievement can be summed up in a single phrase intellectual honesty and integrity. Dr. Du Bois was a distinguished figure in the pioneering days of the Pan-African movement in the Western world. He was the secretary of the first Pan-African Congress held in London in 1900. In 1918, 1919, he organized another Pan-African Congress in Paris, which coincided with the Paris Peace Conference. When George Padmore and I organized the first, the fifth Pan-African Congress in 1945 at Manchester. We invited Dr. Du Bois, then already 78 years of age, to chair that Congress. I knew him in the United States and even spoke on the same platform with him. It was, however, at this conference in Manchester that I was drawn closely to him. Since then, He has been, personally, a real friend and a father to me. Dr. Du Bois was a lifelong fighter against all forms of racial inequality, discrimination, and injustice. He helped to establish the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People and was the first editor of its fighting organ, the crisis. Concerning the struggle for the improvement of the status of the Negro in America, he once said, we will not be satisfied to take one jot or tittle less than our full manhood rights. We claim for ourselves every single right that belongs to a free born American, political, civil and social. And until we get these rights, we will never cease to protest and assail the years of America. The battle we wage is not for ourselves alone, but all through Americans. It was the late George Padmore who described Dr. Du Bois as the greatest scholar of the Negro race has produced and one who always acquired the right of Africans to govern themselves. I asked Dr. Du Bois to come to Ghana to pass the evening of his life with us, and also to spend his remaining years in compiling an Encyclopedia Africana, a project which is part of his whole intellectual life. We mourn his death. May he live in our memory not only as a distinguished scholar, but as a great African patriot. Dr. Du Bois is a phenomenon. May he rest in peace.
0: So uh, very glad that we could share that with everyone, which is a speech I think which has been heard very little since it was delivered. Um, so moving from Ghana to Du Bois's relationship to uh, India, uh, now I'd like to ask uh, Julian Thompson, who's joining us from uh, the South, to read an essay, which actually is an excerpt from an essay which Du Bois had written in. The, uh, in 1957, entitled, Will the Great Gandhi Live Again? This was published in the National Guardian newspaper.
3: Thank you, Jahan, and good morning, everyone. It's a privilege to be here today. As Jahan said, uh, I'm uh, calling in from the state of Georgia where Dr. Du Bois lived for a number of decades, teaching at Atlanta University, uh, historically black uh, college. Uh, as Jahan said, the essay is, Will the Great Gandhi Live Again? published in the National Guardian um, on February 11th, 1957. One point of context for that date is that it is three months after the formal conclusion of the Montgomery bus boycott in the United States. I'll be reading the first part of the op-ed. The greatest philosopher, of our era pointed out the inherent contradictions in many of our universal beliefs. And he sought eventual reconciliation of these paradoxes. We realize this today. Our newly inaugurated president asks the largest expenditure for war in human history made by a nation and proclaims this as a step toward peace. We have larger endowments devoted to peace activity than any nation on earth and less activity for abolishing war. As I look back on my own attitude toward war during the last 70 years, I see repeated contradiction in my youth, nourished as I was on fairy tales, including some called history I quite naturally regarded war as a necessary step toward progress. I believe that if my people ever gained freedom and equality, it would be by killing white people. Then as a young man in the great afflatus of the late 19th century, I came to believe in peace, no more war. I signed the current pledge never to take part in war. Yet during the first world war, quote, the war to stop war, I was swept into the national maelstrom. After the depression, I sensed recurring contradictions. I saw Gandhi's nonviolence gain freedom for India, only to be followed by violence in all the world. I realized the hundred years of peace from Waterloo to 1914 was not peace at all but war of Europe on Africa and Asia with troubled peace only between the colonial conquerors. I saw Britain, France and America trying to continue to force the world to serve them by using their monopoly of land, technique and machinery backed by gunpowder and then threatening atomic power. Then Montgomery in Alabama tried to show the world the synthesis of this antithesis. And not the white Montgomery of the slave power, not even the black Montgomery of the Negro professional men, merchants and teachers, but the black workers, the scrubbers and cleaners, the porters and seamstresses. They turned to a great, uh, to a struggle, not for great principles and noble truths, but just to be asked to be let alone after a tiring day's work, to be free of petty insult after hard and and humble toil. These folk led by a man who had read Hegel, knew of Karl Marx and had followed uh, Mohandas Gandhi preached, quote, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. Did this doctrine and practice of nonviolence bring solution to the race problem in Alabama? It did not. Black workers, many if not all, are still walking to work. And it is possible any day that their leader will be killed by hoodlums, perfectly well known to the white people in the city administration, egged on by white councils of war, while most white people of the city say nothing and do nothing. All over the Lower South, this situation prevails. Despite law, in the face of drooling religion and unctuous prayer, while the nation dances and yells and prepares to fight for peace and freedom, there is a race war, jails full of the innocent, and 10 times more money spent for mass murder than for education of children. Where are we then? and whither are we going? What is the synthesis of this paradox of eternal and worldwide war and the coming of the Prince of Peace? It lies, I think, not in the method, but in the people concerned. Among normal human beings with the education, customary in most civilized nations, nonviolence is the answer to the temptation to force. When threat is met by fist, when blow follows blow, violence becomes customary. But no normal human being of trained intelligence is going to fight a man who will not fight back. In such cases, peace begins and grows just because it is. But suppose they are wild beasts or wild men. To yield to the rush of the tiger is death. Nothing less. The wildness of beasts is nature, and the wildness of men is neglect, and often our personal neglect. This is the reason beneath our present paradox of peace and war. For now, near a century uh, near a century, this nation has trained the South in lies, hate, and murder. We are emphasizing today that when Robert E. Lee swore to serve the nation, and then broke his word to serve his clan, his social class and his private property, that this made him a hero. That although he did not believe in human slavery, he fought four long years with consummate skill over thousands of dead bodies to make it legal for the South to continue to hold four million black folk as chattel, bondsmen. that this makes him a great American and candidate for the hall of fame. We have for 80 years as a nation, widely refused to regard the killing of a Negro in the South as murder or the violation of a black girl as rape. We have let white folks steal millions of black folks, hard-earned wages and openly defended this. W.E.B. Du Bois.
0: Thank you, Julian. Uh, Continuing this India thread, we're going to hear from uh, Divya reading a historical letter written by Du
2: Bois.
4: Thank you, Jahan. Um, I'm going to read a letter from W.B. Du Bois to Jawaharlal Nehru, the first Prime Minister of India, independent India. December 26, 1956 Dear Mr. Nehru, I write to thank you deeply for your visit to the United States. Your restraint and your insistence on peace and equality among men was, in, was needed in this land where the voice of Asia as well as that of Africa has long been ignored. The emperor of Ethiopia was well received in this nation, but he had no conception of our problems and their relation to his country. The presidents of Liberia and Haiti were welcomed, but they spoke as the colonial subjects of American imperialism. The president of Indonesia comported himself with dignity, but did not realize what careful concessions were being made to his dark skin, which were not at all characteristic of this nation. General Romulo in the past has spoken more for American businesses than for Asiatic rights, but your Krishnamenon has been a tower of strength for the darker nations. And as for this reason, met much of the force of American color prejudice. For this reason, I and my people greatly appreciate your visit and your calm, wise, but strong words. The situation of the American Negro today is peculiar. Our long and bitter fight for equality, which began its modern phase with the founding of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People in 1909 has begun to bear fruit. Legal barriers are falling and the nation is recognizing the fact that it cannot claim to be a democracy so long as freedom is denied colored citizens. We are not yet equal citizens, but conditions are improving and real emancipation is in sight. For this, we have to thank the rise of the socialist republics and the rise and growth of free India. I have followed with increasing sympathy and appreciation your part in this tremendous task. At first, I was deeply disturbed at the jailing of communists, but as progress towards socialism developed. I understood better the vast task which confronted you and the courage and persistence which you were accomplishing, the great end of making India a great and leading nation. I was in the past a friend and admirer of Lajbeth Rai. I saw something of your sister, Madam Pundit, at the United Nations Organization in San Francisco But my long desire, born from my knowledge of Mahatma Gandhi, has been frustrated by the fear of my government, lest if I were allowed to travel abroad, I would tell the truth about the still existent color bar in this nation. Beginning with my attendance at the World Council of Peace in Paris in 1949, I have been persecuted in varying ways. Indicted as an agent of foreign power in 1951, of which I was acquitted after great expense and worldwide effort. Since then I have been refused a passport to travel abroad and lived under annoying (coughs) espionage. Nevertheless, I am in good health and contentment as I approach my 89th birthday next February. I greet you and congratulate you on your great and successful work very sincerely yours, W.E.B. Du Bois.
0: Thank you, Divya. Um, Now we're going to hear some uh, short condolences from India which were delivered on the death of W.E.B. Du Bois.
5: Well, this is actually uh, a telegram on the birthday of Du Bois. um, And then after I'm going to read a condolence, but this is from Jawaharlal Nehru himself. Um, on the occasion of the 80th birthday of Dr. Du Bois, I'm happy to send him through you our best wishes for many happy returns. India remembers with gratitude his sympathy during her struggle for freedom. Jawaharlal Prime Minister India. And the next thing I'm going to read is, is a condolence um, by Romesh Chandra and CN Malwia, um, delivered on behalf of the All India Peace Council which was a part of the World Peace Council which Romesh Chandra was a president of and of which Du Bois was a foundational figure. Your Excellency, and this is addressed to Kwame Nkrumah, Your Excellency, we are deeply grieved at the sad demise of William Du Bois, who conquered millions of human minds all over the world by his lifelong passing away of the great
1: stalwart no. of African freedom. Johan, uh, you have to get your sound together. You should start all over. Something wrong with your sound, Magna.
0: Is this better, Doc? No. No, uh, is it? Is the laptop on a book? It something?
5: is, yeah, it, it is on a yeah, book. So you just
0: put it flat on the table and try to move closer to it?
5: Okay, this isn't better?
1: That's better. It's better, okay. yeah. Could you start, begin? Uh, No, Michigan. Sure.
5: Your Excellency, we are deeply grieved at the sad demise of William Du Bois, who conquered millions of human minds all over the world by his lifelong heroic fight for human dignity, world peace, and progress. The passing away of the great stalwart of African freedom is a personal loss to African peoples. In his death, the world has lost the beacon of light, of freedom, peace, and friendship. Men of William Du Bois's eminence are rarely found in this world, and their disappearance indeed casts a sad shadow of sorrow over this strife-torn world. At this hour of extreme grief and sorrow, the All India Peace Council dips its banner in honor of our dear departed, beloved leader. Please accept our heartfelt condolences on behalf of the All India Peace Council, and we shall be very grateful to your excellency if you will kindly convey this message and our sincere condolences to Mrs. Du Bois. With best regards, yours sincerely, Ramesh Chandra Sien Malvia, General Secretaries.
0: Thank you, Meghna. Uh, now we're going to turn to tributes from the People's Republic of China. The first tribute uh, will be read by Michelle. We're very excited to read this today because this has been translated uh, from Chinese to English, perhaps for the first time. Um, so I'd like to invite Michelle to give a little background on it and and read it as well.
6: Sure, uh, I'll share my screen so we can look at the translation together. I can just read the short introduction um, that we wrote to the translation for some context. Morning, Dr. Du Bois by Bingxing. The following is a translation of a tribute to Dr. W. B. Du Bois, written by the prominent 20th century Chinese writer, Bing Xing, upon news of his passing on August 27, 1963. Bing Xing was a part of the New Culture Movement, a group of writers and scholars in the 1910s who saw their struggle as against the corrupt Qing dynasty and imperialist power supporting it. The New Culture Movement strived to progress language and art closer to the poor masses of China, eventually leading to the May 4th movement led by Sun Yat-sen, which birthed a new China free of feudalism and imperialism. By the end of his lifetime, Du Bois had made three trips to China, in 1939 while traveling to the Soviet Union, in 1959 for his 95th first birthday, and lastly in 1962, the year before his death. One of many tributes to Du Bois published in China, Bing Bingxing's eulogy honoring Du Bois's lifelong commitment to the human struggle for freedom, peace, and justice is a testament to Du Bois's endearing mark on and importance to the Chinese people and the world's darker peoples. Long live du- Dr. Du Bois. Um, so, as Jahan mentioned, we spent a few of us spent the past few weeks translating this, and we had originally found it in the archives of um, the People's Daily, which is the primary um, newspaper of the Communist Party of China, and it was a eulogy published in 1963. Um, So I'll just go ahead and read the uh, eulogy. The first time I saw Dr. Du Bois was in the early spring of 1959 above the Beijing Hotel in the birthday hall where Dr. Du Bois had his 91st birthday. In the joyous and lively atmosphere, walls covered with congratulatory scrolls, red candles flaming high, this dignified and charming, steady and kind, brown-skinned old man who looked only 60 or so. One wouldn't have thought of his dedication to his dear people, the Black Freedom Movement, which already had a history of more than 60 years. During the evening celebration of this day, while Dr. Du Bois and his wife conversed cheerfully with the Chinese friends around them, I sat aside in silence, heart and mind swelling with the many things I'd seen and heard about the life and struggle of the American Negroes. I remember when I was only five years old, my uncle would tell me the story of Uncle Tom's cabin every night. The cruel and inhuman brutality inflicted by those known as civilized Americans upon Negroes left an extremely deep and bitter impression in my mind. Every night, I would always hold my tear-soaked handkerchief tightly, tossing and turning, unable to go to sleep soundly. When I was in my 20s studying abroad in the American North, I encountered many injustices which infuriated me. Although I didn't meet many Negroes in the north, I knew these acts of injustice were common in America. We had a Negro classmate in our college dorm who was an outstanding student and honor society member, but no one even talked to her. I once had a conversation with her during breakfast and found her to be so lovely. I visited her that evening. She was so happy and thanked me over and over again for coming. She said, you know, our college still allows a few Negroes with excellent grades and s- to come and study here. In the South, don't even dream about it. I'm lonely, holding in tears of isolation, but when I think about what I can do to help my people after I gain knowledge here and graduate, I feel a sense of comfort. Her words made me feel immense sympathy, resonating deeply with me. Thereafter I would visit her often to talk. Some of my white classmates disapproved, and others who knew me better told me frankly Don't waste your time and feelings on a Negro. Once, a pastor invited me to his house for a weekend. The female chef in his family was a Negro and only in her 20s. After dinner, I went to the kitchen to help her wash the dishes and chatted with her. It turned out that in her spare time, she was studying and had even joined a drama club. We had a lively conversation about their rehearsal of Shakespeare's plays. The next morning, when the pastor and his wife invited me to the church for worship, I also ran to invite her. With a very surprised and thankful look, she shook her head repeatedly and said, thank you, I can't go. The pastor and his wife never let me worship with them. We have our own church. I was shocked. I remembered when I attended Sunday school in Beijing Missionary Middle School. In our lecture hall, there was a picture of Jesus with children of all skin colors. A Chinese child was wrapped in Jesus's arms. A Negro child was leaning on Jesus's shoulder. And rather, the white child was farthest away sitting at the front of Jesus' feet on the floor. It turns out that this painting was painted for Chinese children to see. If racial segregation could be practiced in a place where God was worshiped, could it still be a religion that promoted freedom, equality and brotherhood? At that moment, she pushed me from behind. Go by yourself. They're waiting for you. You're too naive. You have seen too little. You do not understand. On another occasion, I visited Washington DC and stayed with the National Women's Party. After returning one evening, a member of the Daughters of the American Revolution approached me to chat. I brought up how whites and Negroes were segregated on the DC trolley, a fact which shocked me. Flushed with sudden emotion, she said, this isn't surprising, at all surprising. If you were to go south, you'd see much harsher things. You should know Negroes are not simply human. Negroes are simply not human. They lack human reason and human emotion. In short, they should all leave America. And these words coming from, quote, a revolutionary daughter. The snow white dome of the Capitol, brightly illuminated by piercing lights, suddenly became bleak and dismal in my eyes. Seeing her teeth gritted like a vicious dog, I suddenly remembered the famous Negro singer, Paul Robeson singing in the auditorium of our school some days ago. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. His voice was so impassioned, so throbbing to the heart and soul. The discrimination and abuse faced by American Negroes was so wretched and ruthless. Yet all that I'd heard and witnessed was only a fraction. However, it was around this time when I discovered that the birthplace of W.E.B. Du Bois, leader of the Black Freedom Movement was in the same state as my college, Massachusetts. He was a warrior who charged forward fearlessly against imperialism and defended world peace. As early as during the First World War, he understood imperialism as the root cause of war and that peace could only be ensured when imperialism was eradicated. He was an even more fearless spokesperson for American Negroes fighting for freedom and equality. He researched history and the social sciences in order to write many academic works about Africa and Negroes. At the same time, he endlessly wrote many works that reflected the Black struggle and inspired the will of Negroes. At the university, he taught, edited publications, and started and participated in many Black liberation activities. He constantly struggled for the liberation of American Negroes. It was not until 40 years later in Beijing, the capital of New China, that I paid tribute to this African-American writer, poet, and warrior. I felt an indescribable excitement and honor. My second meeting with Dr. Du Bois was even more memorable. It was a winter night in 1962 in a small, warm restaurant of the Beijing International Club, where we had, where we gave Dr. Du Bois and his wife a farewell dinner. They had spent a few months in China and were about to return to Ghana. He underwent two pro, prostate, prostate, prostate. prostate, prostate his surgery operations in London not too long ago. So I assumed he would look tired. To one surprise, this 94-year-old warrior, apart from meeting someone to help him walk in and out of the room, was cheerfully talking and laughing, the crinkles of his eyes brimming with kindness and humor, and his appetite undiminished. He said he enjoyed the Chinese food, Beijing, and loved everything about New China. He spoke of how He was currently writing an encyclopedia of Africa in Ghana and how Africa in the European and American mind is smeared and distorted. It was not the truth of Africa. He intended to dedicate the remaining years of his life to the cause of introducing African civilization and culture to the world. Watching him talk with such animation and joy, we felt comforted by his good health and fearless spirit. This year on August 29th, the bad news came that Dr. Du Bois passed away this month on the, 90s, on the 27th in Accra, the capital of Ghana. A black giant has fallen. Before his death, the late US Communist Party leader, William Foster, once gave him the following praise. The new and brilliant leader of the Negro people, Du Bois, for at least a generation largely shaped the main line of struggle along which the Negro people have made splendid progress. For decades, many of the very best fighters and thinkers produced by the American Negro people have been actively grouped around Du Bois. A black giant has fallen. However, the big flag under which he fought for black liberation, opposed imperialism and defended world peace in which he held high will now at the insistence of his fellow comrades and the vast majority of people of all races of the world continue to be held high. The sound of his bell-like call to the Negroes of the United States and Africa to fight for their own liberation will be like that of the far-reaching sounds of the African drums, traveling through the forest wilderness, reaching over rivers and oceans, and spreading across Africa and other continents. With grief yet comfort, we read about Dr. Du Bois's lover and comrade, Shirley Graham, who after reading Chairman Mao's statement in support of the struggle for African-Americans, spoke excitedly to our Xinhua News Agency report in Accra. Quote, never has the leader of a powerful country issued such a call to the world. Quote, my husband, Dr. Du Bois, and I express our gratitude to the great leader and friend of humanity, Chairman Mao. We all remember that the last time he came to China, Dr. Du Bois himself said enthusiastically, quote, the dark continent can depend on the friendship and sympathy of China. The Chinese people will always remember their words of gratitude and will double double their efforts to impose imperialism and support the cause of the Black struggle, forever pushing forward. Yet we are happy for Dr. Du Bois. As Shirley Graham said in her reply to Premier Zoe's message of condolences, quote, during his life, he witnessed American Negroes rise up and rebel against the unbearable conditions of America in which they lived. When he was on his deathbed, his ears were filled with the resounding sound of marching footsteps. The struggle of American Negroes is vibrantly unfolding. Dr. Du Bois's decades of hard work have budded and blossomed. We would like to be with Shirley Graham, American Negroes, as well as the people of the world to continue the struggle with the same perseverance and determination until we achieve the final victory. Quote, victory is our final tribute to him. Dr. Du Bois lives forever in our hearts.
4: Thank you.
0: Thanks so much for reading that very rich essay. Uh, one interesting thing um, you and Michelle was telling me was that uh, that last part, reply from Shirley Graham back to Joe and Lai about the footsteps resounding is referring to the March on Washington because Du Bois died right before the March on Washington. Um, Next, we will have some uh, more uh, short condolences and tributes from uh, China, People's of China, read by Emily. She also, had, I think, has some visuals to go along
4: with it.
7: So I'm going to read three condolences um, upon Du Bois's passing by Chairman Mao Zedong, Premier Zhou Enlai, and Vice Chairman Song Qingling. These were written to Shirley Graham Du Bois. The first is by Chairman Mao Zedong. Upon learning with grief the news of the death of Dr. Du Bois, I wish to extend to you my deep condolences. Dr. Du Bois was a great man of our time. His deeds of heroic struggle for the liberation of the Negroes and the whole of mankind, his outstanding achievements in academic fields and his sincere friendship toward the Chinese people will forever remain in the memory of the Chinese people. This next condolence is written by and Enlai. Mrs. Du Bois, Shocked to learn Dr. Du Bois's unfortunate death from illness, I wish to extend to you on behalf of the Chinese government and people, and in my own name, our deep condolences. The life of Dr. Du Bois was one devoted to struggles and to truth-seeking for which he finally took the road of thorough revolution. Ever since the beginning of this century, Dr. Du Bois had been a prominent leader of the American Negroes and had waged resolute and heroic struggle for the freedom, equality and emancipation of the American Negroes. At the advanced age of 93, he became even more determined to devote himself to the cause of communism and thorough liberation of the whole mankind. His unbending will and his spirit of uninterrupted revolution set an example for all the oppressed people to follow. His virtue, wisdom, and academic achievements demonstrate that the Negroes are a fine race. The oppressed American Negroes, as well as all other oppressed nations, are now waging vigorous struggles for liberation. This is a component part of the great struggle of the world's people against imperialism headed by the United States and against all sorts of exploitation and oppression. Neither the enemies... Repression and deceitful measures nor the modern revisionist betrayal and sabotage can forestall the final victory of the struggle. Dr. Du Bois was a loyal friend of the Chinese people who loved him and held him in high esteem. He will forever live in the hearts of the Chinese people. Zhou Enlai, premier of the State Council of the People's Republic of China, August 29, 1963. And finally, the last message of condolences is by Song Ching Ling, who is also known as Madam Sun Yat-sen. She's the widow of the great leader Sun Yat-sen. And her message, shocked to learn of the unfortunate death of Dr. Du Bois, I extend to you my profound condolences and heartfelt sympathy. Dr. Du Bois devoted his brilliant life to the struggle of the liberation of the Negroes for world peace, and for human progress. He will be respected and remembered forever by the Chinese people.
0: Thank you, Emily. Uh, now our final historical tribute for today will be a short tribute uh, read by Jeremiah Kim from the Democratic People's Republic of Korea.
8: Thanks, Jahan. Um As Johan said, this is a telegram from Kim Il-sung, the leader of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea um, or North Korea um, on the occasion of Dr. Du Bois' death. Um, It reads, Madam Shirley Graham Du Bois, on receiving the sad news of Dr. William Du Bois' death, distinguished peace champion and scholar, I tender on behalf of the government of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, and the Korean people, profound condolences to you and other members of his bereaved family. His unflinching struggle against the racial discrimination policy of the imperialists and for safeguarding peace, as well as his contributions will remain forever in the memory of the Korean people. Encouraged by the lofty idea of Dr. William Du Bois of liberating the whole of mankind, the struggle of the oppressed peoples the world over against imperialism and colonialism for freedom and liberation will develop still more vigorously and win final victory definitely. Kim Il-sung, Premier of Cabinet, uh, Democratic People's Republic of Korea, uh, September 2nd, 1963.
0: Uh, Thank you very much. And uh, I think it was very interesting to hear all those tributes together. Truly, we get a sense of Du Bois as in, Internationally, globally significant figure for really all of progressive humanity, and there are many tributes we could have read. For the uh, you know interests of time, we had to limit them. But there's it was so significant. Um, so moving on to the uh, next part of our program, uh, we're going to start with some. Uh, we have some friends joining us, members of the free school from India, should be joining us any minute. They're just messaging me. Um, but uh, Doc, is there anything you'd like to say about the tributes before they join us?
1: Yeah, if I could just say this, and, and this fortifies us that is in the free school and others in our recognition of how significant Du Bois's activism and scholarship was to the fight for humanity. Um, we should, oh, there Raju and Nanditha. How's it going? <laughs> wow.
9: We're good dark.
1: Hey, hey Nanditha, turn on some lights, y'all in the dark like. <laughs> but, uh, you know, um, uh, Du Bois, uh, was given a a state funeral in Ghana. And many, many nations, in tribute to Du Bois, lowered their flags to half-staff, and closed their embassies in tribute to Du Bois. His own government, the government of the United States, refused to lower the American flag and went on with business as usual. which said how isolated U.S. imperialism was from the rest of humanity, and and you know if it was the case then, in 1963, it is more so the case today. And you know Kim Il Sung, I should say, because maybe people don't know who Kim Il Sung was, and why he is revered by the Korean people and and all progressive forces really. He led the resistance to the Japanese occupation of Korea uh, in the 1930s and 40s. Then he led the resistance to the genocidal war of the United States against Korea where Korea was literally um, flattened. And it is estimated that the United States dropped a bomb for every single living Korean. And Kim Il-sung led that resistance. Uh, We cannot in this country and very few people can imagine such a war and what it meant to galvanize his people and to rebuild what we call North Korea or the Democratic People's Republic of Korea into what it is today. And for Kim Il-sung to pay tribute to Du Bois is a great freedom fighter paying tribute to another freedom fighter. For Kwame Nkrumah, uh, the leader of Ghana, the first independent nation in Africa uh, after colonialism, uh, to invite Du Bois to come to Ghana, to live out his last days, to work on his encyclopedia of, of Africa, and then to refer to Du Bois as the father of pan-Africanism. Uh, and then, of course, Mao Tung and Zhou Enlai, and, and there, there was more, you know, Roma Chandra, the leader of the modern peace and anti-imperialist movements to speak on behalf of the peace forces in India and here the two largest nations in the world are paying tribute to Du Bois. And I just think that we are bound by history and morality and decency to raise this man's name and his contribution and what he means, especially to us in this country and to the fight in this country. And um, I, I think I said it before, in the ideological realm, it is either Du Bois or the abyss. We will not move forward with ideological and political confusion. We cannot move forward with the immorality of constantly attacking Du Bois of putting him down. We cannot move forward and especially black folk have to be in the vanguard of embracing and restoring Du Bois as the great thinker for this time. And if we don't, we should know that we'll never be free. We will not be free unless we embrace Du Bois. Uh, because we will be a people without integrity. Uh, We will be the slaves of our own oppressors. So I think these international tributes from all over Africa and Asia and Europe and South America uh, say so much to us in the 21st century.
0: Yes, so we went through historical international tributes. Now we'll have a live international tribute from uh, Bangalore, India. Members of the free school, Raju and Nandita,
1: please. Oh, man. <laughs> so nice to see you all.
9: So we're starting the discussion?
0: Well, you would like you to say a few words about... about Du Bois and India and whatever you'd like to say we we went we just went through all the historical tributes and then we're moving on to the, this this part.
10: Okay.
11: Where should I begin? Um. <clears throat> oh, well, it's nice to see everyone and uh, <laughs> nice to be on the preschool. school. Um. Uh, after we moved back, uh, I think for the first time after we moved back to India. And uh, we miss everyone a lot here. <laughs> um, but um, I wanted to uh, talk about Du Bois and his relevance uh, to the Indian freedom struggle. And uh, Du Bois uh, was to say that the independence of India was one of uh, the greatest events uh, in the 20th century. And uh, uh, I think uh, um, it's, you know, it's difficult to do justice to a person of, uh, to a man of his caliber and to the kind, to the depth of his thought um, and so I just wanted to say a little bit about how I think his thinking and his ideas help us um, conceptualize the importance of the Indian freedom struggle in the 20th century. And the statement that he made in recognizing the significance of this is um, uh, is something that uh, has really um, uh, been important for me and important... At this time, uh, you know, at a time when these freedom struggles are no longer understood and respected, um, perhaps in the same way, uh, and need to be to be able to move forward. And uh, <clears throat> I think we've talked in the Free School about how um, uh, heterogeneous India is with the number of uh, regions or their own culture and identity. Um, and, uh, you know, number of languages and uh, the South is different from the East, is different from the West. Uh, But there is an underlying unity in the country which is seen even in the oldest epics um, uh, which geographically go from all the way from the North to the South uh, and East to the West. And uh, 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 there was um, an... The devastating effect of colonialism on Indian society uh, has, I think, still not been properly reckoned with, um, and uh, this is both in terms of the destruction of the culture, uh, but also in terms of destruction of um, the science and technology which existed. Um, you know, lack of economic growth for decades and decades, uh, deindustrialization. And um, each society, um, you know, ultimately had to seek out uh, an independent path for revolutionary change. Uh, Even as there were commonalities in the uh, world struggle, there were certain differences everywhere. And uh, I think there was a big question on what was going to be the path of revolution in India. And there were many uh, different alternatives and debates around the 1920s in India. Um, um, You know, there was what's called the Hindu Mahasabha. Um, There was the Congress Party. The communists came around that time. And there are many contradictions that had to be dealt with between the village and the urban areas, between, um, you know, different religions, different languages, the presence of old feudal relations and so on. Um, And uh, I think there were some who thought that there could have been, uh, you know, Russian-style revolution in India. Um, And uh, I think we know in retrospect that the most advanced forces of freedom uh, were um, Gandhi's movement. And uh, if Russia was the weakest link um, in imperialism, as uh, Lenin said, that Um, you know, led to the Russian Revolution. India was the first link among the colonized nations to come out of colonialism. And, um, you know, if the, with the French Revolution, you associate words, liberty, equality, and fraternity. I think the Indian freedom struggle gave philosophical concepts uh, like ahimsa or nonviolence, like satyagraha or uh, truth force or swaraj. Um, which means self-rule. And I think these are distinct um, uh, and I don't want to talk too much about it, but these were distinct concepts and ultimately said that you have to love all human beings, that you have to have a commitment to the truth and that you have to, it's not mere independence, but self-rule and uh, discipline. And uh, I think that this break that India had um, was never properly... Uh, theorized within um, European radical thought or, you know, European progressive thought. And I, I I think that Du Bois is perhaps the foremost thinker in the 20th century who provides us with a framework in which to understand the significance of this break. Yeah. Um, and uh, the boys Gandhi and Lenin were, you know, just born three years apart. The um, boys was the oldest. And I think the concepts that he developed in the long life that he lived, you know, the concept of the color line, the concept of the black worker, particularly as it related to um, black, brown, and yellow workers around the world. Um, these concepts um, have in their logic, a place for the freedom of India to be a possibility and a historical event of the 20th century, uh, which I'm not sure any theoretical conceptualization before it fully had. And um, I think that in seeing those who were seen as backward, including the Indian peasantry, as capable of culture and civilization, and as capable of forming the vanguard of revolutionary change, which comes out of our understanding of the boys, um, one is able to really make sense of why there was a freedom struggle in India, why it was so important, um, what it represented—you um, know—a break um, uh, in. Uh, the central contradiction of the 20th century and perhaps the 21st century. Um, and uh, um, I think it speaks to uh, the genius of W.E.B. Du Bois uh, that he was able to develop um, a framework of thinking that um, has you know, is has space for the Russian revolution, as we've been reading in the free school has space for the Indian freedom struggle, and has in it a certain logical character, which allows both of these historical events of the 20th century to be uh, not a certain outcome, uh, but a possible and maybe even a natural outcome of the events uh, that took place. Um, and the way the forces in these countries developed. Um, And um, I think, um, you know, uh, I, as other members of the free school, have been very influenced by uh, the boys. And I I think I'm getting more and more convinced that uh, his thinking and his ideas are necessary in the United States, but also around the world because they have a particular conceptualization that is difficult to find um, anywhere else.
9: I, I just want to add a short thing. Um, uh, I think the boys has had the most effect, most has caused the most change in my thinking out of in, any of the readers, any of the thinkers we've read um, and uh, I, I've changed many aspects of the way I think because of him and his writing. But maybe the most, um, or the formulation that I think about most in this time is his idea that not only are ordinary people capable of creating art, music, and science, but that all civilization has its roots um, in the poor. And um, I think if you view the world like that, it really frees you up. Um, and, you know, since we've been back, I think um, there's a kind of pessimism in in the intellectuals, in the intelligentsia of, of Indian society. Uh, and I think it relates to basically a kind of pessimism about the people. Uh, and I think that because we root ourselves in the Bois, we are able to be optimistic. Uh, so, yeah, I, I just to say that he's, he's really changed the way I think.
0: Well, thank you so much for the presentation and for joining us so late at night. Um, I know that they may not be able to stay very long. So I wanted to ask doc or others, if you wanted to um, say anything about, or respond or before we get into the other presentations.
9: We can stay, we can stay for a little bit. Okay,
0: all right. Uh, well, the next uh, order of business for the program was actually to get into some um, presentations by some PhD scholars and the impact of Du Bois on their research. Um, and, uh, it's supposed to be uh, Divya Magna and a third person was, Brandon Stanford was supposed to join us, but I haven't heard from him. So I'm not sure if he will be. But uh, Doc, did you, you wanted to say a few words to uh, begin this uh, section?
1: Well, I just uh, just briefly, I know all three of these scholars and I I know uh, kind of their journeys in in you know scholarship and writing Ph.D.s, and each of them in choosing to uh, think about their research through the lens of Du Bois face tremendous uh, pushback, um, and and they're they're working in diverse fields, uh Divian literature. Uh, Magna in uh, social work in the field of urban sociology, and uh, Brandon in African-American studies. And um, each faced pushback. Uh, I don't know how much pushback they'll face now given that everybody has to believe that quote, black lives matter. And I guess Du Bois's life matters now, um, but, It's very fascinating, it's been very fascinating for me to observe how they go about doing their work and how their thinking has uh, been radically shaped uh, by their encounters with Du Bois. Each of them, I should say, were going very traditionally about getting a PhD, doing what the department or what the head of their committee said do. And then when they said no, we think we can do something else that's more profound that will make a greater contribution. Suddenly they find themselves without um, uh, people to chair their dissertation, and kind of like being um, without mentorship in a de- in departments that uh, and being told, "I didn't know you were like this. If I'd known this, I would have never." Uh, brought you into this department uh, it just became a uh, very difficult but they persisted and I think are producing some of the most important scholarship uh you know that we've seen in their fields
0: uh Divya would you like to start us off
4: sure um so um My presentation is called To W.E.B. Du Bois, A Journey in Four Movements. Thank you for inviting me to speak of my research journey to Du Bois. Du Bois, for me, is what George Chapman was for the poet John Keats. In Keats's poem, on first looking at Chapman's Homer, the English bard talks about his encounter with the Elizabethan playwright George Chapman's translation of Homer into the English tongue. In the poem, Keats conveys this experience like so, quote, much have I traveled in the realms of gold and many goodly states and kingdoms seen, round many Western Isles have I been, till I heard Chapman speak out loud and bold Then felt I, like some watcher of the skies, when a new planet swims into his ken. For me, Du Bois was like this new planet, swimming into my ken as I watched the great skies of knowledge. Well, life is like a symphony, and it happens in a series of movements. And my relationship with Du Bois is like that. So I've structured my thoughts in that way as a symphony. Allegro. The first time I encountered the souls of black folk I was studying in England in 2006. The question of consciousness and the Du Boisian idea of double consciousness influenced me immensely. I composed a number of papers informed by his thought and at least one paper I distinctly recall on Toni Morrison's beloved. And yet I did not know Du Bois. I did not know the depth of his contribution to the philosophy of consciousness, how his own novels laid the foundation of African-American literature. Andante. My second encounter with Du Bois was in graduate school in a class on sociology and literature at Penn, where we read The Philadelphia Negro. I learned vaguely about his career at Penn in my notes for a seminar paper on the souls of Black folk, I underlined the following line, quote, while sociologists gleefully count his bastards and prostitutes, the very soul of the toiling, sweating Black man is darkened by the shadow of vast despair. And yet I still did not know Du Bois. I did not know the ambidexterity of his genius his deep appreciation for the arts, particularly the national life music of his people, disappointed yet doggedly determined to be free. Minuet. My third encounter with Du Bois was when I embarked upon my dissertation. I was studying British poetry along with philosophy and literature through a field called post-colonial studies which promised a global feminist queer outlook on literature attentive to networks and assemblages of power knowledge. But where was the dawn of freedom, I thought? Where were the spiritual strivings of my people, the beauty of their dark faces, their ways of speaking and storytelling? Where was Africa? Where was Asia? Whence came the mighty tide of civilization that swept European shores during the Renaissance? Where was Hinduism, Islam, Buddhism, the spiritual life of Black Africa? Where was the truth of sunrises and sunsets, the pang of a prayer escaping lips at midnight, the sole force that makes the literary the very precipice, precipice, excuse me, of what in the English language and Western philosophy is called consciousness but most importantly, where was love? For the truest literature shines a light on the way leading to love. Like music, literature ultimately expresses a truth that is beyond words, beyond sound, even though these are the conduits of their conveyance to human ears, human hearts, and human brains. This quest for the fleece of knowledge brought me to the free school in 2016 where we began reading Du Bois in earnest. In 2018, in honor of his 150th birthday, we read nearly all of his major works, not in an academic way, but as human beings, struggling to make sense of ourselves, our purpose in this ever-bewitching world. And this too, in a city whose streets Du Bois trudged, making concise notes about the humble brown phases of its denizens, his people, compiling them over a low flame in the midnight hours with the assistance of his devoted wife, Nina Gomer, appealing to the humanity of its white rulers. Suddenly the souls of black folk and the Philadelphia Negro took on a new life, a living history peopled with characters and scenes I found myself meeting on the streets of Philadelphia. Truths about social experience I had never understood streamed from the lips of my dear associates of the free school, some of whom who are with us and some no longer. And then there was his aching poetry to freedom, his exhaustive histories of the world, his political organization against segregation, lynching, and world war, his spiritual quest to end poverty and racism in America and in the world, and erect a civilization in America not merely based on white ideals, though he did not reject the beauty of even white folks ever striving to peer into their souls. Most of all, Du Bois saw the destinies of India and Africa were intertwined, seeing the antiquity of their civilizations, the beauty of their dark peoples, and above all, the eternity of their spirit. And how could I go on reading literature in the old way ever again? After all, the greatest literature shows us who, or rather what, we really are by revealing the divinity of humanity, the content of its character, and the ephemerality of the shadow world. And then all of a sudden, I began to see Du Bois. Allegro. Hymn to the People by W.E.B. Du Bois. So sit we all as one, so gloomed and tall and stone-swathed groves, the Buddha walks with Christ, <clears throat> and Al-Qur'an and Bible both be holy. Almighty word, in this thine awful sanctuary, first and flame-haunted city of the widened world, a soilless lord of lands and seas, we are but weak and wayward men, distraught alike with hatred and vain glory, Prone to despise the soul that breathes within. High visioned hordes that lie and steal and kill. Sinning the sin, each separate heart disclaims, clambering upon our riven, writhing selves. Besieging heaven by trampling men to hell. We be blood guilty, lo our hands be red. Let no man blame the other in this sin. And here, here in the white silence of the dawn before the womb of time with bowed hearts, all flame and shame, we face the birth pangs of a world. We hear the stifled cry of nations all but born, the wail of women ravished of their stunted brood. We see the nakedness of toil, the poverty of wealth. We know the anarchy of empire and doleful death of life. And hearing, seeing, knowing all we cry, Save us world spirit from our lesser selves. Grant us that war and hatred cease. Reveal our souls in every race and hue. Help us, O human God, in this thy truce to make humanity divine. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Divya. Uh, now we'll hear from uh, Megna.
5: Yeah,
1: uh,
0: can, can everybody hear me? Is the audio okay? Yeah, no, uh, it's not okay. Move a little closer to the, to the computer. Is this
1: better? It's something. I don't know what I I think
0: it. Talk, it gets a little better as you talk. The first couple words you say are very, there's like kind of a um, static or something.
10: All
5: right, um, so I'll just get started and I'll keep an eye on the camera um yeah so i mean thank you Divya. i, I was actually just remembering that we both have uh, we have we had mentors that were coming from the same ideological orientation of post-colonial theory and for young south asians looking for a place in the world how do i root myself how do i you know give myself to justice um you know how do i how do i fulfill um what I what I want to do with my life, um, these people gave us this answer of you know everything is so complicated you can't know anything, um, and just really turn your back on your own people. Right. Uh, and I think we both we really rejected that once we found Du Bois because of Du Bois's clarity and integrity and just um, the way that he positioned himself on certain questions that gives you a large. Uh, holistic framework of the world. Um, And so we were both kind of, uh, you could say retaliated against for that. Um, But be and and also, you know, I was just at a presentation on Du Bois's data visualization at Penn. And it was just so interesting, because they were just gushing about Du Bois, oh, Du Bois, Black Lives Matter, how beautiful are his graphs, he predates modernism, but then ending with like, he was a very controversial man for good reasons. And so this thing where you can just you can just pick and choose what you like from Du Bois without uh, making any of the sacrifices or taking any of the stances like on communism, on the anti-colonial struggle, on peace. Um, I think it's really a way of stripping Du Bois from uh, who he was and who he was telling us to be as young scholars. You know, I think in the in the Fisk anniversary um, message that Doc mentioned, he said, "You're the watchman on the on the wall." You know, you you have a responsibility as young thinkers to even if you don't have accomplishments or you don't bring money back to your institution of learning, have the truth, struggle for the truth and not only know the truth through science, but stand up for it. And that's more important than the science like Doc was saying. Um, and so I, that's just, I wanted to start with that point about epistemology in the Philadelphia Negro and in Black Reconstruction You know, this idea that it's not that we can learn, uh, we can know the world through facts and figures and that'll show us the truth or everything is just too complicated. We can only really study ourselves. There can be no clarity, but it's that no science freed from white supremacy can get us to the truth. We can strive for the truth. We can choose a side. We can live and earn our debts. And I think this is the kind of scholar Du Bois was and this is the kind of scholar that we aspire to be um, and so, I mean, that, <laughs> that brings me to my topic, which is on universities and gentrification and how uh, universities are gentrifying cities and what all of this means. And so, um, you know, I, I wanted to start out by talking about the work that I'm kind of grounded in right now uh, in my theoretical framework, which has enabled me to see past a lot of the, you know, white Marxist geography by people like David Harvey, but be rooted in an actual analysis of what uh, you know, a movement of working people and poor and oppressed people uh, actually means in the city and how they shape the city and what it means now that they're destroying the civilization of the black worker through gentrification. Um, so I just wanted to start with the first concept from uh, black reconstruction that, is, um, that I think is very central, is this idea of the centrality of the black worker to the struggle for democracy, by which Du Bois means the struggle of the people to control the wealth. So uh, I just wanted to read this quote from uh, the Black Worker chapter. The true significance of slavery in the United States to the whole social development of America lay in the ultimate relation of slaves to democracy. What were to be the limits of democratic control in the United States if all labor, black as well as white, became free? were given schools and the right to vote? What control could or should be set to the power and action of these laborers? Was the rule of the mass of Americans to be unlimited and the right to rule extended to all men regardless of race and color? Or if not, what power of dictatorship and control and how would property and privilege be protected? That was the great and primary question which was in the minds of men who wrote the Constitution of the United States and continued in the minds of thinkers down through the slavery controversy. It still remains with the world as the problem of democracy expands and touches all races and nations. So this idea that by disenfranchising black people, property and privilege could safeguard itself, but when black people enfranchise themselves and want suffrage, they could exert democratic control over capital. So, you know, someone like David Harvey he talks about the right to the city, which is when uh, the workers control the surplus. Cities are a place where capitalists dump surplus, so it's when um, it's the control over the surplus that's the the struggle for the right to the city. But at the same time, he criticizes black politics as divisive. Um, because, and I, that's because he, ha- he doesn't understand that the, the struggle of the Black worker is a, is a struggle against capitalism. It is a struggle for democracy. It is a struggle for peace. And this idea that Black people are the movers, the central uh, movers of history, and they're, they're central to everything that happens, all these movements for peace and justice. Um, and the other concept that I'm, I'm, that's very central is this dictatorship of the Black proletariat, And throughout Black Reconstruction, Du Bois is calling, uh, he's saying that Black Reconstruction is a struggle for land, light and leading. So in governments like South Carolina, uh, you have the Black worker exerting a dictatorship over the erstwhile planter class and capital, in which when they take advantage of this universal suffrage in alliance with white labor, they establish public schools, they outlaw racial discrimination agitate for the redistribution of land, uh, raise taxes on the South, and actually transform these planter oligarchies into actual modern states. They establish charitable institutions, they rebuild infrastructure. And I think, and this is the argument I wanna make, and I want you all to give me your feedback. Uh, It's something I'm working out, uh, definitely Doc and Catherine. Uh, But I think we can say that there is an analogous reconstruction in Philadelphia with the Black Power Movement in that you have these outstanding political leaders like Cecil B. Moore, Lucien Blackwell, Father Paul Washington, Leon Sullivan, who are engaged in this fight for land light and leading. You know, Cecil B. Moore, and this is also a fight against the machine, the white controlled uh, machine politics. And this this is a fight for an actual principled politics, you know, a, a, a revolutionary politics. So Cecil Moore integrates Gerard College He fights against the discrimination against the black worker in unions and in in workplaces. Mm -hmm. Father Paul Paul Washington and his wife, Christine Washington. Mm -hmm. uh, They nurture the black power movement. uh, They they help the poor. They actually develop houses in their community. They're the community, the Advocate Community Development Corporation. Lucian Blackwell, his fight against homelessness, his fight for workers. um, He had a program called the Gift Property Program which was putting people in, in vacant homes that they could own. We're not talking about this charity, affordable housing, we'll build a multi-million dollar apartment and then you know we'll, be, we'll put in some affordable units that are not even affordable. But this is actually putting people in homes. This is the politics of, of power, uh, of self-determination. And it, it's, it's, yeah, so, and the other thing is that these, they always connected their struggle to the fight for peace you know, connecting what was happening to this demonic suction tube of war. And this is what's being erased today. So I just want to talk. I mean, I'm focusing and I also want to get your feedback on this doc and Catherine is um, This focus on home because I think there's an analog with the struggle for land in black reconstruction. You know, this idea that black workers bought their own houses, sometimes they even planned their own communities. And this was the anchor for these black liberation movements. You know, and and so Philadelphia had the sixth highest homeownership rate in 2000 of all the major cities, and this was an accomplishment of the black proletariat. Um, I think in 2000 it was almost 60%. Um, and I just want to read a passage from Black Reconstruction. Surprise and ridicule had has often been voiced concerning this demand of Negroes for land. It has been regarded primarily as a method of punishing rebellion. Motives of this sort may have been in the minds of some northern whites, but so far as Negroes were concerned, their demand for a reasonable part of the land on which they had worked for a quarter of a millennium was absolutely justified, and to give them anything less than this was an economic farce. On the other hand, to give each one of the million Negro free families a 40-acre freehold would have made a basis in the real democracy in the United States that might have easily transformed the modern world. So actually a lot of these white Marxists are against talking about home ownership because they say oh this is private property we need to take housing outside of the but it's very abstract you know but I mean I think the struggle of black people for their homes is part of the struggle for democracy and right now what's happening is you have finance capital moving in and um, basically turning all these houses these single family homes which is the wealth of the black worker the intergenerational wealth of the black worker going up from the Black, the, the Great Migration, and they're turning it into rental properties for students, but really just, it's it's a part of a larger trend of finance capital and home ownership. except for the very wealthy, make them all renters. So I, I want to argue that this is the struggle for democracy, the struggle to keep homes and the struggle to make people uh, homeowners. And um, I mean, just after this period of uh, reconstruction, you see the attack on the Black uh, which is kind of analogous to the, withdraw- the the end of Reconstruction, you know, the shuttering of factories, disinvestment, mass incarceration, drugs, and now with gen- and now because of this betrayal of the Black misleadership class, you have this, this betrayal of Black politics. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I was going to read this quote by Glenn Ford on Black misleadership class, just, the current Black misleadership class voluntarily joined the enemy camp, calling it progress as soon as the constraints of official apartheid were lifted. They exploited the political and business opportunities made possible by a people's mass movement in order to advance their own selfish agendas. And in this process made a pact with power to assist in the debasement and incarceration of the millions of their brothers and sisters. In the case of black elected officials, their culpability is a direct and hands-on. So you see this attack by the black misleadership class on the black worker um, and the replacement with this new woke managerial class, like Doc was talking about earlier, um, in this new knowledge economy, city of knowledge, um, they basically they don't want black workers. they don't want people who are rooted in anything, they want people who don't have history um, and and um, I mean, I actually had a conversation with um, a councilwoman, uh, Blackwell, who is the widow of uh, of uh, Lucy and Blackwell, and she said, And I asked her about this new class. She's like, I'm rooted in religion. I'm rooted in the civil rights movement. So I asked her, what do you think this new class is rooted in? She said, it seems that the only thing I know is that you have a handful of wealthy people who decide that they have an agenda and that they want to make it their agenda. I don't know what their agenda is to make it real. So this agenda is like density. You know, We want high rises because it's better for the environment. Um, you know, we don't want uh, bikes, we just, or we don't want parking, we just want to have everybody ride bikes even if they're 75 years old. Um, you know, oh, we want affordable housing, we want to protect, protect renters. And also they're displacing this, the, 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 the leaders of the black workers with their, the gentrification vote basically. Um, and we can't forget um, the, the Black Lives Matter movement which was mostly white people in Philadelphia. Um, and the gap between the community and these so-called movements that have popped up. Um, And so I I just wanted to end by showing some maps that I made. They're not as, you know, it's interesting. You know, they make this big thing. We're teaching you maps, we're teaching you skills. You know, you should take these classes because you'll learn something concrete. And you know, when I compare these maps to the maps made by Du Bois, they're not, I mean, they're made with a computer program. They're not nearly as beautiful or as complex or as um you know just as uh brilliant but i think they do serve to show some of the trends so i will um i'll just i don't know if Jahan, you could help me share screen
0: uh yeah you should be able to i made you co-host you should be able to yourself share screen okay the bottom ah, okay. Bar, middle
5: okay okay um so i just wanted to show this map uh which is of um this is just I think from the latest census, everything in yellow is the university and it's showing the concentration of black people. So you can see already that it's almost like they're making these little bubbles of like, you know, of, of white people of or of the whole multiracial diverse uh, kind of like around these universities and it's just so clear. Um, I, I almost thought it was like a cavity, you know, like eating into the tooth. Um, uh, these are maps I made of the concentration of black homeownership in Philadelphia so um, yeah I mean this is in this is in the 80s and 90s but then you can see what happens 2000 and this is this is temple and this is university city in Drexel so this is 2010 this is concentration of black homeowners as a out of the total occupants so this is 2010 2014 so you just see this real dilution. Um, this is another map I made of using a cluster analysis. So like looking at uh, demographics and what are the clusters? And I found there was a white cluster, a black cluster, and a cluster I'm calling cosmopolitan, which has people who are more university educated, both the white and the black. It's less university educated, but these cosmopolitan more university educated, more renters, and you can just kind of see the increase around Temple, especially. Um, So yeah, that's just, I just wanted to end with that. And I definitely want feedback because it's, um, it's the first time I've put everything together. And yeah, I mean, I'll also say, I don't think that my uh, committee is that happy with the inclusion of Du Bois. I mean, but we, we can talk about that more.
0: Right, uh, thank you very much for that presentation. Both of Divya and Meghna's presentations help us, you know, see the impact of Du Bois on social science today. And I think uh, Meghna ended at a useful point, uh, bringing it back very much to the present. So uh, what we scheduled now for this part is to just open it up to discussion to all the participants that are here, particularly I'd like to ask those who haven't uh, presented anything or read anything to their responses, uh, both to the presentations, but you can also talk about the program. Uh, miss Catherine, would you like to start? Uh,
10: yes, this has been uh, a pleasure for me. Uh, hello, Raju and uh, Nanda. Uh, miss you. Uh, I'm glad to see you guys. Um, I, I'm just um, overwhelmed, Meghna, uh, by what you did. Um, linking uh, what's happening in Philly to Black Reconstruction, um, that was phenomenal and so clarifying. Um, oh, my God. So um, it provides a context for us to understand what's happening and and, and, in a clear, concise, but also historical perspective, all right? Um, So I wanna encourage you uh, to continue as things heat up in Philly, because it is getting worse. All that you said about that displacement. So I call it urbanology or urbanism, uh, for lack of a better term that is being used to push forward this notion of density and biking uh, 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 and uh, displacement of black folk and black leaders, uh, the the loss of home ownership uh, because um, uh, this uh, left in a lot of the young millennials who are uh, uh, caught up in uh, this notion of urbanism is anti-people, is anti-humanity but they use the notion that it is uh, more friendlier to the environment because you cut down on greenhouse gases, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they are marching forward. They are marshaling their troops. They are undermining the uh, electoral politics of the city Uh, um, actually because the city is organized in wards. And so they're undermining the wards. Uh, they are promoting this, and by they, and I'm talking about the dark money, the developers 3.0, they have something now called uh, Fifth Square, something now called, um, trying to think, uh, Philadelphia Transit, uh, the Biking Coalition. All of these forces have come together with the blessings of the elected officials um, uh, to indeed push forward the control of the land in Philly, uh, basically. And and um, right now the community is gradually waking up, but again, we have the uh, black misleadership class, we have the left, uh, and then we have the, a lot of the millennials who have bought into uh, uh, the notion that density is good uh, uh, for uh, urban environments. So I think that your work is groundbreaking. I'm, I, I'm looking forward to you, uh, you know, presenting it and, and, and putting it out there for people to know and, and to understand. Uh, so thank you, thank you. No, I'm
5: very indebted to you. I mean, that's also the thing. It's, I'm such a product of the free school so much more than any university class. I mean, it's just, it's just amazing. I've had to go against everything they teach, everything they encourage you to do, to be able to do something that um, I can be proud of. Um, and yeah, yeah.
0: I... Uh, one comment uh, from Samir, well done, Meghna. The issue of homeowners and renters came up at the stadium stompers meetings and it's important. Um about um, Alice, Jake, Serafina.
12: Yeah, um, I can speak. I think something that Meghna just pointed out is that um, we are all so indebted to kind of uh, the free school and all the folks that are on the call, not on the call, um, particularly because I know I remember when many of us came out of the university and really had, um, I guess, varying degrees, um, levels of thinking about responsibility to, or towards the world or, to, or towards America and also towards the world. Um, because like I think the best of us can only hope that, okay, I think there's this like broad conception of, okay, how do I benefit a certain isolated community? But it's never tied to kind of what Du Bois shows us where his interest in the black folk of America connected him to movements across the world, whether it was Asia or Africa. Um, and I think, yeah, today's, um, I guess, speeches, uh, tributes, et cetera, speak to, I think it reminds me of this journey that many of us have been on. Um, And as we have paid these tributes, it's also just folks from um, throughout the world have recognized um, Du Bois's contribution um, to humanity as well. Um, Something that uh, the groups that I've been part of have been speaking about, which is um, in reading group and also in preschool, which is how Du Bois has made, um, I guess what Doc said earlier, a very like the basis of all revolutionary movements are great ideas. Um, and Du Bois truly does um, make that contribution, whether it's and of even talking about black reconstruction and then even connecting that to Russian America, uh, the, Situation in Russia, where um, his interest in the working class um, helped him to identify that during the black during Black Reconstruction, there was this moment where the working class of Black folk were able to, um, they had the potential to redefine what democracy looked like in America, whether it's through the public schools or whether the it was the political conversations or engagements that were happening within the Black community. Um, and then, kind of what we've seen in recent weeks, which is in Russian America, he saw that same pattern where after um, the revolution, there was this moment for um, the working people of Russia to redefine that society. Um, and it really is to the testament of his um, genius, but I guess he would say that his genius was the result of many um, uh, circumstances and events um, and people. Um, So I'm really grateful um, to the free school, but also all the presentations today.
0: Uh, Yeah, two comments on this more on this gentrification issue. Uh, Nabila writes, why are high rises and packing buildings viewed as good? Look at Ridge Avenue. Look at the skyline being crushed with the final blow being destroying Penn's Landing. They have closed off Martin Luther King Drive. The people be damned. Uh, Greg Thompson writes, while wow, Meghna's presentation is so enlightening, it brings up so much that the university doesn't want clarified. The gentrifier logic really is the logic of Davos, quote, you will own nothing, you will be happy, end quote. Get this out where people can see it. Davos, of course, referring to the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab and the Great Capitalist Reset, which we've talked about previously. But other folks, Jake,
13: Serafina. Yeah, you know, I I'm, You know, uh, I was thinking about, um, especially on like Du, like du Bois' birthday, you know, like, okay, well, what did he mean, you know, um, to me? You know, when I first, you know, okay, first you know, opened Du Bois, you know, Souls of Black Folks, actually. <laughs> it was funny because I was thinking about it. Um, I remember reading it on the train. And I remember like looking up and seeing this like older black guy, and I, you know, there's a nod. Nah, he's like, yeah, right on, you know, kind of, you know, there's an encouragement there. You know, naturally, I don't think at that moment I was I was really prepared. That was kind of on the on the beginning sort of of my my journey toward, you know, ideological or toward uh uh learning from the free school, you know, and growing in the free school, you know. So I so I I I put souls of black folks down and didn't really <laughs> didn't finish it until maybe a. Uh, uh, year after that, that was kind of toward the beginning, um, but I do think it's it's like Baldwin talks about in um, To Be Baptized. You know, um, after a people have uh, have been crushed um, for centuries, and you know have uh, you know have been oppressed for centuries, they cultivate their own morality, and you know this is coming out in Du Bois. This is coming out in um, you know in his 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 astronomical his his towering work. You know um, of you know. Uh, of, of truth, you know, um, it's so poignant, the truth will set you free, you know, and, and, you know, Du Bois has that same effect that Karl Marx or has that same effect that, you know, uh, philosophers, the great, the great philosophers of history have, you know, of setting the people free. Um, and I do feel that, you know, I, you know, through reading about, uh, through learning about Du Bois, through learning about, you know, um, the souls of Black folks from, to Russian America, you know, <laughs> and learning of, I mean, I, my mind goes to, um, Dark Princess, you know, learning about how beautiful struggle can be, you know, and 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 in learning how beautiful struggle can be, I learned about how beautiful that I could be, or how beautiful that you know the people that live up North Philly. I, I always go back North Philly, you know, and and how be you know <laughs> how be how beautiful people down South Philly could uh, be, you know, how beautiful um, their lives are. I am really struck, Magna, by the um, you know the the the, the combination of. Um, of you know this uh, you know uh, struggle for democracy being the struggle for you know the control of wealth you know um, and you know you can you can when you own the land you can dictate the terms of the wealth you know um, and I think it's so poignant um, that the struggle for democracy is a struggle against a gentrification and is a struggle for the ownership of the land you know. Um, there was a lot today. There was a lot today. There was one right, right when you st- when you um doc when you started out by saying you know um, uh you know, the struggle for uh or or like you know you know going out and you know we're based in ideology we're based in thought you know what I'm saying whereas the left is based in um you know just going out and at having action you know I thought it was poignant when Du Bois in um Julian Thompson read uh, Gandhi, uh will the great Gandhi live again. You know what I'm saying, and and he said it was by neglect. Uh, it was by neglect that you know violence continued to happen, and I think it's so poignant that this neglect um, that he he uses this word neglect and that he uses you know he draws out this idea. You know this is the same neglect that's happening in the left. This isn't the same neglect that's happening in America you know, America is uh, willing or, you know, in, in progressive struggle, quote unquote, progressive, because it is really quote unquote, y'all. Um, <laughs> it's like, you know, you're not willing to think, you're not willing to um, stand up for any, any type of ideas, you're just willing to go out, and do, uh, go out and, and do the action that looks the most popular. But see, the problem there is, you know, okay, who dictates the terms of popularity? This, and you know, if you see it on, like the doc always points out, you know, this is corporate media fake news. You know what I'm saying? If the media is dictating the terms of your popular, popularity, if the university is dictating the ideas, then you know you are acting on, you are acting on ideas. You are acting on, um, you know, thought. You know what I'm saying? But you haven't thought about it. You know what I'm saying? And this is, and this is the key problem. You know what I'm saying? Because you know you are serving some, you are serving an interest. You know you are serving something, and you know if you don't um, realize, you know that you're serving that interest, then the, <laughs> then the interest gets served, you know, by you. You know what I'm saying? And you don't serve the people, you know. Um, and this is this is the the fierce neglect, and it's why why ideological clarity? Why do boys, you know, is so important for our time? Because it's like, wow, okay, I can serve the people, and this is how it is through the struggle for land. It is through the struggle for you know. Um, a basic human rights, the democratic dictatorship of the proletariat the people's needs, you know um yeah i think the um it was interesting it reminded me even of uh, the 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 struggle for against gentrification reminded me of um uh, um um what's it called uh, radio golf august wilson's last work um and at the end of radio golf you know the the guy you know he 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 finally comes to the house. Uh, this this beautiful house um, that uh, that um, oh, I forgot her name. That's that's a that's a um, But the, the the sort of the the wise woman of of Pittsburgh. You know, going back to the gem of the ocean. Um, I still can't remember her name. Um, he goes to the house. You know, and he and he's this this politician. You know, you know, black politician, black misleader, You know what I'm saying? But then seeing the beauty of the house and seeing how much the house and uh, the woman uh, meant to the town. He he sees, okay, well, I have to, you know, I have to sacrifice, you know, I have to struggle because they were about to, they're about to tear the um tear the um house down and there was a protest for it, you know. Um and I do feel that, you know, uh there is a deep, mm, you know, this this politician, he finally joins the struggle for democracy, you know, as as you know, Meghna, you're laying it out, the struggle for um the people's dictatorship of of okay, well, I want you know Philadelphia to look like this. You know, rather than Philadelphia being high sky rises and, and bikes, like it don't make no sense. You know, it don't make, people what. <laughs> so I think it, I think there is a, a deep realization, and that's why the ideological struggle is so important. Um, you know, uh, because it is it is through the people's ideas and through their movement. You know that there that that we find freedom, that we find um, you know uh, a just society, a society that has peace. You know. Um,
14: Just to add to everything, um, I was just thinking about how, Nandita, you said that your um, thinking has changed. And there is something to that, like, you know, studying with the free school, being with everybody, and learning about the freedom movement of the 20th century does change, you know, the person. Um, And I think. While you were talking, Jake, um, this importance of the synthesis, that kind of thing came up in my head where there are all these like factors, um, you know, of history, um, which comes with a bunch of philosophical, you know, uh, understandings, you know, you kind of have to tear it, you know, you have to dig through yourself. You have to be honest with yourself to understand it. Um, you know, you have, it's about these moral principles that you have to agree to, you know, and think through. Um, and, uh, I think that is like, when Magna, you're pointing out, uh, the gentrification, how it is linked, you know, what, uh. For the struggle of Black people, uh, which is the struggle of working people, you know, of this country, uh, to to like Black Reconstruction, in that sense, which is you know, you know that kind of turning point in America, you know what, um, you know how can America turn towards democracy in a true way? Um, it's like. And also, uh, what's it called? Julian he pointed out how you know Du Bois studied in Atlanta, but like the question of the black belt, you know, comes into my head too. Um, and I think it is is it it isn't hard, you know, for black working people to think and see how gentrification has affected, you know, their homes and what do you know, Black people have or don't have, which is also why, you know, there's the anger, and, uh, and, uh, yeah, I think it was, like, it's how, you know, we're able, and I was also thinking about how we're able to think about things, you know, in the free school, is might sound a little weird, but it's just, like, You know, listen to how we talk. Okay, so Doc said this. Okay, Jacob said this. Oh, you know, so we're like putting things together. Nothing is separate from each other. Nothing is really different. You know, enough to be abstract in a sense. You know, we have our own life worlds, our own situations that um, allow us to think about things in a certain way in different ways and compare and build, which is, you know, how we are able to assess and also how, you know, ideas can move forward. And I think similarly, the whole, I guess, how one's, you know, is supposed to think, what is a progressive force? Why is it this, you know, repeating concept of Du Du Bois being a humble, you know, even that picture, Emily, that you pointed, that you had at the end of your presentation, I really like that picture, you know, Um, and that isn't, it's just symbolic, that's all, <laughs> Jake. But um, but it but it has something to do with the fact of um thinking about chance. You know, this kind of thing of law and chance, where you know we aren't a, you or are human beings. You know, aren't supposed to be dictated to in the sense. You know, when we talk about the fourth, re- you know, industrial revolution and things, uh, people can't be robots. You know. Um, but also like how that there is a, there is still a struggle. Um, and I think only, I don't know anybody else, you know, politically speaking, you know, on the left that really is able to listen in the same way to the um, strivings of the people and have this kind of clarity, because Magna, you kind of just in my head pointed out an agenda for like, you know, like to the next, sorry. You know, like five-year process, okay, you know, the question of homes, okay, this, you know, question of power, you know, of wealth, how is it to be used and whatever, or even like this thing, which I do suggest would be like voting, you know, how's the vote process because it's, you know, education, you know, those kind of questions in my head, because I remember one, I had like, a, you remember, Jacob, when I went up to New York with um, Tony and we had... He, he's, a, he's a caterer and uh, that situation came into my head and that was like three, some years ago, it was crazy. Cause you know, he's just a cook and he has been for like 20 some years. And um, I went up with him to work at this, you know, largest, this is the largest, most wealthiest thing I've ever seen. For the first time, for the first time I've never seen something like that in New York. And then I came down back to Philly and went right to West you know, West Philadelphia at 40th and Preston. And there's just, you know, so yes, there's still a problem of poverty. Yes, there's still a problem of the human dignity of people. And I think there's, you know, situations that, you know, we experience and situations that um, we can now connect to through through education itself. Um, That's what makes it clear for the struggle towards, you know, For the future to the future, which I think you know that picture that that Emily pointed out, you know, kind of accurately depicts with the kids, but um, that's what I have to say with that.
0: Uh, Some more comments on this issue of gentrification. Uh, Do Byun writes, I majored in urban planning and I can confirm that the ideas of my university indoctrinated me and my classmates into thinking that was uh into thinking that a democratic city is one of walkability affordable housing and bike lanes thank you Megna, for bringing black reconstruction to today in Philly to clarify what a democracy has and could look like and of course the lack of connection between the university and the people Eric Hudson uh writes from Chicago hyper gentrification is insane in Chirac 200,000 units of housing gone with the destruction of public housing, mass displacement as part of the reverse migration, and the destabilization via violence in our streets further ripens black Chicago for gentrification. This is happening throughout America, encouraged by the black misleadership class, which is why we have to understand as Du Bois and Marcus Garvey understood that our liberation can only be won by a suited struggle of the black diaspora. Love the freedom school. It is real. Um, someone asks uh, Tremaine Smith, "Who dictates the terms of popularity?" I'm not sure if that's an, if anyone mentioned popularity, but uh, or that's a rhetorical question. <laughs> It's certainly for us, we're not going by the university or mainstream media standards of popularity, but you usually go against what's popular, if you want to hear (laughs) You want to hear something that goes against what the mainstream thinks is popular, you can tune in every Saturday. (laughs) Um but no, it's quite interesting uh, what uh, you know Doe is saying about the university connections, gentrification. It's something Catherine was talking about as well. The ideas emanating, the reactionary ideas, which we're trying to combat with the Du Boisian ideas, and what this uh, Eric Hudson is writing about Chicago. I mean, it shows that it's this is a process happening in uh, many many cities, and that's this whole spiral of violence of uh, you know homes being taken away. Drugs, poverty, hunger—all of it is an attack on uh, the the proletariat, the, and especially the most progressive forces, black proletariat. And uh, we've been talking as well in Free School about what has happened to these what we've called stranded populations—these formerly white workers who are not who are basically long-term unemployed, also facing similar problems increasingly that are there in the inner cities, and you can include large numbers of Latinos and, and others as well. And so the question when the society is in such a crisis is which thinker do you turn to? What do you turn to? And we're uh, so convinced that Du Bois is the one because of this uh, study which we've done, all these ideas which we've been talking about today. I mean, and, and I was, you know, it was very interesting what uh, uh, Raja and Nanta were saying about how Du Bois is the foremost thinker for them to understand a lot of important uh, points about uh, India's history and its current situation. And for us as well, I mean, here, because of how much he developed, uh, how sophisticated his understanding is of the relationship of the poor to civilization, that's a concept that you don't find really anywhere else in uh, any Marxist writings or writings on socialism. And uh, why, when we've been reading Russia and America, we've talked about it's so relevant for now for the rise of Asia, the decline of the West, the crisis facing white America, all of, for, for all of those uh, points. So that's regardless of whether he's considered popular or not.
1: Yeah, if I could just say something about popularity. I think uh, that's that has undermined a good part of the social media uh, driven so-called left and progressives. Uh, if your audience is an audience on social media and you're trying to get millions of Twitter followers or how many likes you get on uh, Facebook, uh, I think you've already condemned yourself to mediocrity and to uh, a state where you cease to be radical and you're trying to be a revolutionary, you're trying to be popular. Uh, I know Tremaine is a great artist and I really mean a great artist, and um, if she um, uh, uh, based what she does on what is popular, and of course, uh, Serafina's painting, you know, uh, and uh, Jordan Deal, by the way, uh, and, you know, hanging out with them and, and their disappointment with a lot of the mentorship, I uh, quotes of um, artists who have a other of a previous generation uh you know, because what, what, what so many people are saying is the main thing is to get paid. And that's another way of talking about popularity, uh, but that's not revolutionary. And now with social media, the culture of canceling people of I'm not going, you know, uh, uh, you're not thinking the way I am and the way I'm thinking, I'm trying to appeal to a, quote, broad audience, whatever that means, it's kind of like marketing um, uh, uh, methodology, selling Campbell's soup or uh, selling Nike um, sneaks. Uh, I'm marketing myself uh, rather than seeking for the truth. And this is where Du Bois cuts against the grain. And that is what is so important. You know, just like Magna, Black Reconstruction and Gentrification, Divya, the world in Africa, Du Bois as a, as a historian of the European 18th century. I mean, this you're talking about thinking outside the box. I mean, it's not even thinking, it's destroying the box itself. You know, and everybody talks about doc this and doc that. I'm on this journey with everybody else. You know, because you know, take Russian America. I had heard about it because I read about it in David Levering Lewis's biography, but it was Raju that brought it to the free school, and he was the one telling me, "Read this, read this, Raju," and it, it goes across the board. Um, everybody has has been making this contribution. And, you know, I, I'm not as hard on Marxist as you are, You, some of you all are. I am, and I think what we're getting at is the fact that Marxism quote unquote has become an academic pursuit, which means it's being reduced to nothing and irrelevancy. Soon as it gets into these, into these universities, especially the elite university is dead. So they've killed Marxism and You know, if it's not for people like us, they would kill Du Bois. Academics are interested in job security and getting paid, not in the truth. And the universities are the worst places uh, in this country to pursue the truth. Uh, I think, however, just on the question of Marxism, By knowing Du Bois, you understand Marxism better. You really do. Lenin makes more sense to me now than 20, I mean, 30 years ago because I understand Du Bois and Du Bois is the next moment of a great creative synthesis. And, and, you know, for Kim Il-sung or Mao Tse-tung or, you know, on and on a Romesh to pay tribute in Krumah, to pay tribute to Du Bois, that was not because um, of his activism alone. It was because they recognized that there was something fundamental in his understanding of the world, especially how he conceptualized, the anti-colonial struggle, and what is possible from within it. And then of course, a theorist of paths to communism. Uh, Yeah, it's it's huge. Uh, What is this, this treasure trove that's been opened up to us all. I guess our problem, shut my mouth after this our problem i know it's my problem i just don't understand why people are resisting this i mean what are you fighting against that's what i want to know uh you don't like the free school why because the free school upholds gandhi and du bois and martin luther king and baldwin you don't like that what do you want That's what I want to know. What are you interested in? Are you genuinely interested in freedom, peace? The people as as everyone is, the ordinary person. You say black lives matter, but what black life? I mean these, of course I'm stating things rhetorically, but if not Du Bois, then who do you propose that? And I'm waiting for the answer. And then if we have a difference, then we could do a Zoom and debate. Would be a beautiful thing. But a lot of people say, well, if we ignore the free school, they'll go away. Well, I got something to tell you. The good news is, no, we're not, we're not going anywhere. And like like they say, it's upon this rock that we stand. We're not relinquishing Du Bois. We're not playing academic games with Du Bois. We're in an existential crisis of a system. But the good news is this system is not dominant, hegemonic anymore. We've seen it lose its hegemony and have to go into what we've called imperial retreat. And at this moment, I'll shut up. I'm gonna shut up Joe, forgive me. At this moment, ideologically, we have no reason not to go on the offensive. Not not to use the words that a lot of people don't like to use like anti-imperialism. You can be all the Black Lives Matter in the world and never talk about anti-imperialism, never talk about world peace. What about communism? You know, I mean, since you're so down, why don't you bring that up? There's, there's not. This is not a time to retreat. It is a time to advance ideologically, and ideas become a material force when ordinary people take them up. And somehow I believe at least in this city, Philly, and I'm certain in other places, somebody is hearing what we're talking about because we haven't stopped talking. We haven't stopped thinking. We haven't, and people can see our hearts. This is no game that we're playing. We're very honest. We're very sincere about this. That's what I would say.
14: And just similarly to that, to tie it back to what uh, Nelson said, why she's optimistic, like.
1: Definitely. I agree (laughs) with her optimism. (laughs) I am too. Exactly. I would say realistically optimistic.
0: (laughs) <laughs> Optimists who won't step back one one-tenth of an inch.
1: Mm-mm, mm-mm, mm-mm. There's no reason to. You know, John, there's no reason to retreat at this point. There's no reason. I mean, you can be cancelled, but you know, who's cancelling you? Who are they anyway? I had to ask that because I've been cancelled recently pretty heavily. But, you know, hey, I resp- I'm going to cancel you now. So we canceled each other, beautiful.
10: <laughs>
0: <laughs> made it to the oh, honor it's... roll of canceling.
9: <laughs> I just, I wanted to add to what Doc just said, because uh, you know, this this idea that we have to be on the ideological offensive. right? Uh, and in all the discussions that we've had, um, I guess about the, about the political situation in India, you know, everywhere we look, we see imperialism mm-hmm. in everything. There's, there's imperialism as a central force in every phenomena you see in the society. And, um, in all the discussions we have, people think we exaggerate the effects of imperialism. You know, you can't blame the white man for everything. You know, some of the... <laughs> Um, And, you know, the some of the concepts that we use, like the Indian state. No, I think the Indian state is worth defending. Uh And the whole idea of activism in this country right now is to criticize and challenge the Indian state. Uh Um, And that's what the left is into. Uh, So I I agree with this, that we have to be on the ideological offensive, because in a way with this um, I guess changing world order and imperial retreat, they're really painting themselves into a corner, to not see imperialism where it is. That's right.
0: Oh, definitely this ideological offensive, actually, now that we've started talking about it, it is a very important concept because the other point is that the, Uh, Even here, the pessimism, nihilism, and confusion of the left, it's always on the defensive. And that's a justification for, you know, lesser of two evils, vote Democrat, vote for whoever, just stop Trump or stop some other boogeyman. There's no sense of even ideologically, let's push forward. Let's, you know, in the way that Du Bois in the most difficult times, I mean, at the height of the Cold War, he's going on an ideological offensive for peace. And he's willing to pay any uh, price, any consequence for it. And I think that's something to draw inspiration from. Um, But I also bring in some more comments. Tremaine Smith uh, responds saying, I'm emphasizing Jake's comment on asking who dictates the terms of popularity. It needs to be repeatedly asked, like a mantra. This will help with questioning knee-jerk responses that we see over and over. And I think maybe that's part of the ideological offensive. You have to question to go on the attack with what's popular. Um, Yvonne King writes, All of what what I've heard today, much I had not heard before, continues to affirm my appreciation for Du Bois' commitment to humanity and his pursuit of the truth. In this time of rampant propaganda, I appreciate never having to think twice about the motivation of anything that Du Bois has written, also based on my senior status I'm encouraged and inspired by Du Bois' international traveling into his 90s, and he remained to the end of his life optimistic about the freedom struggle of all humanity. Lastly, I'm so grateful for all of those in the free school who are committed to collective learning, especially in these unprecedented times..: I mean, I think that's also a very important point that Yvonne raised that we never question Du Bois' commitment and his integrity in anything that he writes even if it's something which we don't understand, like we realize that we have such a belief in him that we have to try to understand what he's saying. And because so much of what he's saying is unpopular today, I mean, that's been very important for
1: us. And and you know, Joe is so interesting. Each of us has her or his particular narrative about how they came to Du Bois and the confidence we have in Du Bois, that's what Yvonne said, we can trust him. Even if you disagree with him, I haven't found anything I disagree with lately, but even if you disagree, a profound trust, this man is honest. say the same thing about all great thinkers, all great philosophers. And in a world where you don't, and this is Tremaine, where, You can't trust narratives. You can't trust um, people that are celebrities. You know, I'm reminded, I wrote a review and we discussed over the summer. It's a good thing we didn't shut down during the summer because we would have been in bad shape right now that we continue to work uh, you know, I, I, I wrote a review of Ibram uh, Kendi's book on uh, how to be an anti-racist. Well, he's come out with another book, edited with a uh, a woman scholar. And um, it's a bunch of short essays by well-known uh, writers, Angela Davis, Farrah Griffin, I don't know who the hell else. Uh, the woman that uh, devised the 1619 project and, The book hadn't been out a week and a half, and it's number one on the New York Times bestseller list. I thought you had to sell some books to get on the New York Times bestseller list, you know. But the point is what can you trust? And what are these books about anyway? And must we not deconstruct the word author and connect it? to authority and so on. So in the propaganda and ideological struggle, the ruling class has given us their authorities. And these writers are inventions. They are invented by ruling class who wants to, in the sense of the great reset, or the capitalist reset aesthetically and in symbolical terms, reset the agenda, distract from the very things that uh, Magnus talking about, and, and, and really, you know, like Divya, I mean, breaks out of the whole uh, narrowness and neo colonial thing of Afrocentricity by by deploying Du Bois as an 18th century scholar that frames the the literary struggles of that time. Who had thought about that? You know, it's always this Garveyism, Africa for the Africans, Asian for the Asiatics, and Europe, and I guess that means America, for the Europeans. But what about if Africa shapes Europe and European literature, modern European literature is indebted to Africa in the same way that Du Bois argued that the French Revolution is indebted to Haitian resistance. I mean it's this world view is so um, really it's appealing if not because it is, you know, just so aesthetic. I mean, Du Bois is aesthetically appeal. If you don't, if you're not a revolution, he's just really appealing from an aesthetic standpoint. You know, his life is poetic and aesthetic, even.
4: Can I just say that it's the it goes back to the honesty of Du Bois about his sources and
1: his sources, yeah. His
4: sources, because he never said, I am against Europe. He's, I mean, I, I didn't read this quote because it was running over, but uh, he said, Here then is our chance for the future, our mighty opportunity. We borrow as we have a right to borrow, and as Europe in other ages has borrowed from us, the things that in modern days she has taught us. But we use these things for greater ends. Both Africans and Indians must ask to be rid of the spiritual and physical death of poverty. They must educate and develop the manners of their people. They must welcome genius and ability where it occurs amongst the lowest and most unlikely, as well as among those who regarded themselves as the highest. It will be a revelation to see how widespread human ability is when it has a chance and then with the health and strength which decent income gives with the rise of the intelligent mass the dark millions of Africa and India can go forward to set a new standard of freedom equality and brotherhood for things which is in desperate need of these spiritual things and to me like what that suggests is um I mean it's 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 completely ludicrous for us to assume that we're not influenced by European literature We've been reading it since we are like four or five years old. I know I was, I don't know about the rest of y'all, but you're reading European novels. Du Bois was reading European poetry. Every ch- chapters of the souls of uh, black folk are prefaced with fragments of poetry and music that is European, but African and African-American. And you can see how I mean, even what he says about the American Negro is, this, is the new synthesis on this continent. It's not just Africa. Africa is, of course, the influence, the guiding influence of the American Negro. But there's something new. Then again, something new always comes out of Africa, as he says. And th- this is the dialectic. And if you don't go back, too. What Du Bois is reading. I mean, everything he's reading. He's not just reading sociology. He's not just a scientist. He's a poet. And poets, as Shelley said, are the legislators of the universe. And, you know, there's so many romantic elements because he's got, I mean, and it goes back to what Lenin says about the right to self determination, that whole thing. Goes back to the Romantic period when the European nations were saying we have the right to self-determination, like the French Revolution, etc., the Germans, because Europe was not always nation states. It was kingdoms. Then you had the bourgeois revolutions of and each happened at different intervals. Um, and so, you know, you had to really put Du Bois in that. Mm-hmm. Intellectual lineage, not simply as yes, he was African, but as a world thinker who is it? He was he studied in Germany, he studied German, okay, he studied Latin, he studied Greek, he was a scholar of the classics. Now, you can't just say pigeonhole like it's like I'm an Indian, but I mean, my work is like, it's about humanity. It's like, I wouldn't want to be pigeonholed simply as I'm an Indian, you know? It's like, it seems like that's the challenge. It's like, why wouldn't you apply Du Bois to any period? Because in fact, he's a historian of all periods. If you look at the arc of his scholarship, that's all.
5: Yeah, I mean, um, in response to that, because I've actually really been, I've been trying to read. Speak to a little r-
1: you you, you little tinny speaking to your microphone. So.
5: Yeah, um, no, just in response to what Divya is saying, <laughs> just this, um, no, I mean, I think he says in the world in Africa, the decline of Europe because of the African slave trade, because they, uh, because of what they did to other human beings, they lost the, um, you know, vitality of their civilization. But I mean, just reading some, I'm, I'm really into Les Miserables, which I'm in, interested to know what you uh, think about it, but just sometimes, I mean, I, but the Du Boisian spirit is there in that book and just this idea. And also, I mean, I was just looking, Xi Jinping released a, a reading uh, list and it's so interesting what he has on it. I mean, he has all these classics. He has all these Chinese classics, writings from India and Greece Uh, but also books like Les Miserables and Tale of Two Cities and Shakespeare. And I mean, there's just, I I feel like the the movement that we're a part of unlike the canceling culture is about recovering the greatness of human knowledge and giving it to the people, you know? Um, And I think literature is a really important uh, part of that. Um, And just, you know, I mean, what is this, this anti-human thing of don't read this, it's by white people, Um, (laughs) but I mean, we are we are for human we're for humanity. I mean, you can't uh, get at that just by canceling people or, you know. I mean, the Chinese Communist Party, which has lifted so many millions of people out of poverty, doesn't do it. They have a very different approach to things. Um, yeah,
4: yeah. On that note, I just think it's important to take responsibility. On and given and what you had said, um, Doc, about. Um, You know this whole rationale that we don't own anything, right? That comes from Marxism. We don't own anything. It's a, it's I, it's but it's now. You now have a steward class, right? That says we owe you don't own anything, and we don't own it, but actually, it's whiteness as property, as the famous argument, you know, by Cheryl Harris. Um, so like you see there is it's I mean, I don't believe Ultimately, none of this belongs to us. It really doesn't. When you think about it. It's it's a fiction that we create that this plot of land is mine this this country ends here and it other country begins there. I mean, yes, ultimately, these are social fictions from a spiritual standpoint. But um, From a practical point of view, when you have a a conquering power, you know, you you need a roof over your head. (laughs) You know, you need land to grow your food. And if you work that land, I mean, it's a gift from God that the plants even grow and that you have your life, but you don't take, you don't steal the bread from another person's mouth, like, which is why Gandhi always said, he didn't believe in this whole idea, even he was critical of the Russian model, which I, as I think Raju pointed out, didn't quite work in India for a reason, because, because it's the idea that, um, of centralization, that he was very skeptical of, because he said, um, he said that this would, um, he said, I would rather have private ownership, but the the people that work in a mill, for example, they are as much owners as the owner of the mill. And um, that uh, in fact, the wealth that, person who came up with the idea of starting it, and that is, of course, important, is, uh, I mean, without the labor, that wealth could not be created. But that recognition has, if you, but it's like, if you take away, if you like, for example, what happened in Russia was, Soviet Union was, they forcibly took the land away from people that were owners and didn't, and Gandhi said that that, that's not going to work in the long term because that creates more resentment. From a psychological standpoint, you can do that. You can use force, but it's it's more powerful. Like what uh, Vinoba Bhave, who Dr. King met with in India, when you persuade people by appealing to their humanity to give give land, donate land, because you don't need all that land. One person only needs a plot.
11: Or whatever. Uh, well, I was just uh, going to say that I think, uh, um, at least in, w- in what I was saying, I was referring to the path to revolutionary change. But I think what you're talking about, Divya, is also the organization of the state, and I'm not sure if we fully worked out how. Um, One, because Gandhi didn't get to participate in the um, uh, you know, building of the Indian state because of his assassination. Um, And uh, yeah, so I'm not sure if that question we've uh, uh, fully worked out on how the state should be organized and how it was organized in Russia and it was organized in India and the necessary differences because of the differences in conditions. uh, yeah, but uh, I agree, and I think uh, to what uh, Doc was saying earlier—this idea that there could be different paths towards a communistic organization of society—is a very deep one and a relevant, for, relevant one for today. Um, but uh, on this note, I'm—the g- <laughs> two of us are going to go. It's getting kind of late here. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs>
1: As much as we want to stay, it's, you know, we'll be dropping off on the on the live stream. You no, know, Raju, I saw, I've seen you go to sleep before on the live stream, so I'll oh. be if you do this. Time. But, it's likewise, Doc. <laughs> hey, but think, I mean, but one thing we can agree upon, Raju, that the path yeah. of communism in India is not by the one-year plan. <laughs> because once you go to the one-year plan what's stopping you from going to the one-month plan and then after that the one week plan i mean
14: no plan, <laughs> no plan.
1: let's be real you know, uh well this is a joke we between... speak <laughs>
10: It
9: was nice to see everybody. Bye <laughs> nice. you
10: guys. Nice to see you too, right. Nice seeing too. you guys. Bye bye. Bye.
0: Um <clears throat> some more comments. Uh Brandon Doe writes, while we are blackballed and canceled by the left in the US, I think it's beautiful that we have comrades in Asia embracing the free school. Du Bois's framework has given us the clarity and courage to see ourselves in the rise of darker people as a part of a world movement rather than adopting a me against the world mentality. The people who attack us are miserable and in actuality, they're the ones who are truly isolated, not us. No matter how many times we get canceled, I deeply believe that history will absolve us. Uh, Kathy Jung writes, Returning to the translation of Bing Jin's tribute to Du Bois and the photos of Du Bois's travels in China. Thank you, Michelle, Emily, and other comrades who worked to shed light on this beautiful and heartfelt connection between Du Bois of the Black Freedom Struggle, anti-colonial movement, and world peace movement, intellectuals and leaders from communist China like Zhou, Mao, and Sung Chin Ling. Before I started studying Du Bois with my reading group, I didn't realize that what I had been looking for throughout my intellectual growth was someone like Du Bois, who could so beautifully, rigorously synthesize the traditions of the black freedom struggle with the civilizations and struggles of the darker peoples around the world. That we can apply in this particular moment of Western civilizational crisis and the rise of Asia.
6: Yeah. Oh, oh, go ahead. Michelle. <laughs> yeah, You can go ahead. Okay, okay, I'll go ahead. <laughs> well, I wanted to say that. Um, yeah, it was also really, I think there's so much that we went through in today's discussion, which really struck me, but it really made me think about how Du Bois is a thinker who makes like the concept of freedom real, you know, like he gives, he gives a science like a method for it, he gives a philosophy for it. But then you also see it in the example of his life and how just how timeless everything that he has given us is. And um, something that I really agreed with that I think Serafina and Doc, you had said is that like each of us has our own distinct histories, worldviews, like ways of thinking, but somehow we've all been really, you know, we've all been really able to like find a home in a heaven in Du Bois. And um, I know that like, you know, I think when when I first, Started reading Du Bois. It was it was to understand concepts like the moral choice or how to how to you know root myself in an education or in the pursuit of scholarship for humanity. But you know, like a year or two later, we're revisiting Du Bois again, but this time to understand, let's say, like you know, the young progress, the young American progressives' role um, in a counter revolutionary moment um, mm-hmm. when. When, when, when empire is collapsing, but Asia is rising and we can find that kind of blueprint in Russia and America. And then you know, Divya, like you had said, there's world in Africa, um, there's black reconstruction, which can kind of explain the dynamics and what's happening in the city of Philadelphia, which we're all rooted in. And, um, and then there's dark princess, which gives you that like framework of timeless struggle and how we come from a thousands year long tradition and we're building a world which will last for thousands and thousands of years more. And it's it's almost unbelievable that he, he really captures it all. And I really feel that he's a thinker that we can walk with for a very, very long time. Um, and yeah, I, I'm just really grateful that we are having this tribute to him today. Um, and um, yeah, I, I think it just really concretizes how much he's been for us as a political collective and um, everything that we're going to be forging ahead. Um, yeah. Yeah.
7: What what I was going to say is really similar to you, Michelle, um, about like what you just said about how Du Bois, we can find a home in heaven and Du Bois and most importantly, the truth, um, and a spirit of pursuing the truth. um, and something that I think Serafina also mentioned, just about how important, du- how important Du Bois is in understanding civilization is coming from the poor. I feel like that one image of Du Bois in China with the children that you were referencing, Serafina, it hit me because I also just thought about how similar to Michelle's comment, in some ways, Du Bois is one of those few figures who just really feels for some reason like a universal human being. Um, and I think in the way he lived and his pursuit of the truth um, and his fight for peace, I feel like a lot of that is because, in some ways, he was embodying um, the struggle to become and the process of becoming the new human being. And I think uh, talking about canceling, I feel like Du Bois was, if anything, the OG going against not being afraid of being canceled because he even says in Russian America. At the height of anti communism, everyone's saying this and that about the Soviet Union. He says, you know, at that point, he kind of, he's read so many newspaper articles about the horrors of the Soviet Union, this and that. But he says, like, despite all that, he says, I'm going to go. I need to know what's happening there. And I just feel so overwhelmingly appreciative for Du Bois today and with such a beautiful tribute, with like the world, the international tributes to Du Bois, because I feel like in some ways, Du Bois has painted this constellation for us that connects the Black Freedom Movement and Black Reconstruction, this experiment of American democracy that has failed because of the way this country has treated the, basically the color line or the way this country has purposely put down um, Black people and the experiment during Black Reconstruction. But you know, like this, in and the, con- the constellation that's made up of the Black Freedom Movement this great experiment in Russia for, a de- for the democratic dictatorship of the proletariat. And then you have Asia and Africa and the independence movements. And I feel like only Du Bois could really paint that constellation for us the way he does um, and the way that we're understanding it today. And I think this goes along with why he feels like such a universal human being in some ways is that in some ways he can see a tradition of the oppressed or a tradition of the poor um, or tradition of humanity that is a tradition for a new humanity that kind of connects this constellation. And yeah, and I just think it's this tradition, it's both ideological and spiritual. And I just almost feel like only Du Bois really understands that and has shared that with us through his works his whole life long commitment to the truth and his all his works together as a whole and especially russian america and i don't know if i'm just describing it i don't know if i'm describing it in a moving way as much as i feel moved by both our conversation today but also by du bois but i agree completely agree with what you said in the beginning doc about how du bois is the Lenin of our times like du bois we're living in such exciting times and I feel like you can only see that if you take authority from Du Bois, read Du Bois, understand how he saw the world unfolding even in the 20th century. Um, And I think one last thing is just in Black Reconstruction, that motto of land, light, and leading which is inspired by Land, Bright, and Peace from the Russian Revolution, I just think that land, light, and leading you can take that and just put it in Asia or Africa and it would make complete sense there. Um, the same aspirations and yeah and I think the ending remark is just that I feel like China, Asia, they have so much that they could learn from Du Bois to this date as well Um, and it goes back to Du Bois not just being an American patriot or African patriot but really a patriot of humanity.
12: Yeah I think for Du Bois he's served as this creative Um, revolutionary example for all of us, um, particularly in a time where there's just so much division, um, intention and hopelessness, where people don't see a way out for the world. He offers a way out, even though he's speaking like more than 50 years ago. Um, And I think for many of us, we've seen these connections across the world with individuals such as Nehru um, or Song Qingling. Um, And I mentioned Song Qingling in particular because um, kind of what Doc had said before, where his life itself is so beautiful um, because um, Du Bois had made three trips to China and the first trip was the shortest, but then in the second trip, that's when he was able to connect with various leaders of the Chinese Communist Party and one of these leaders was Song Ling. but prior to his visit he had been speaking to Song Ling about um, not being able to go to China because of the State Department um, and then his exhilaration when he found out that he could go. Um, the letters between him and Song Qing are just so beautiful and full of friendship um, and uh, I think serves as an example for all of us in terms of like, what actually um, this peace and unity between nations, but also individuals and people of nations um, look like uh, in the day to day. But yeah, just to add to kind of how beautiful his life was, just aesthetically as well. Um, but.
1: Can I just say something about, I hope I'm not talking too much, but just something that Alice and I, have been talking about over the months. I don't. Maybe it's up to a year now, intermittently, about Sun Yat-sen and uh, Su Chi Lin uh, was his wife, his widow, um, and that is an interesting story in itself. But you know, in in Russian America, Du Bois uh, talks about Sun Yat-sen, and somehow in I would think, and you guys can correct me on this, even in modern Chinese historiography, which centralizes the revolution of 1949, somehow Sun Yat-sen as the revolutionary he was, gets lost and takes a back seat to a number of other important leaders, but, and this is what uh, Alice and I were talking about. First of all, Du Bois elevates Sun Yat-sen and says that his program was completely communistic. He says it just like that in Russian America. But the other thing is I think that Sun Yat-sen's program and you know, China was devastated even when, when the dynasty collapsed. The dynasty collapsed because China had been devastated by wars and warlords and landlords and capitalists and foreign intervention, countries in bad shape. Um, But Sun Yat-sen did not believe to make a new China, you had to destroy everything of the past. Uh, And I think, and I would would, um, appeal to Alice in particular, uh, if you don't mind that, I think there's something some work to be done comparing Sun Yat-sen and W.E.B. Du Bois. Uh, Because that will explain his widow who joins the Communist Party. I don't know that she agreed with everything that Mao said or the revolutionary of the Communist Party said, but she joins the Communist Party, but she's always looking to this man of humanity, this man of the world, W.E.B. Du Bois. And, and, you know, of course, those photos of him with the leaders of the Chinese revolution and the Chinese, it looked like he fitted in as well as, it wasn't like a, a sore thumb standing out. He was a dark man among other dark men. And, but you could see that they shared a camaraderie that they were colleagues in a common struggle. And that there was, and, and Du Bois was constantly when he's in China, and this is so interesting, he's always smiling, always smiling. And you can rest assured, he's not always smiling while he's in the United States. There were grim moments, there were disappointing moments. There was a lot of sadness in his life. Of course, the uh, by that time, the death of his, both of his children The death of his first wife. I mean, you know, there was a lot, and then there's, you know, uh, uh, Emily, like your grandfather said, a lot of backstabbers, you know. But uh, but in China, he's always smiling. He feels that he's standing on the precipice of the future.
4: To add to the point about China. You know, like it strikes me so much that you cannot study the British role in India in isolation from the opium wars in China Mm -hmm. because the British started to trade opium for silver in Southern China and that exploited the opium trade, as far as I know. Um, Reading some of the stuff from the 19th century, the literature, you can see how even the British were addicted to opium. But then uh, the British exportation uh, of opium from India to China, facilitated in turn a flow of silver to India. So you can see how even today, I think the question of peace between the two nations um, is so paramount, I think, uh, for the progress. I mean, we talk about Asia rising and so on, but uh we forget uh, the reality of war today um uh and it's um it's really silly when you think about the nineteenth century and the British role both in India and China in devastating the economies and you know destroying the civilization um And you know, it's only, it only, it's only like if we let it happen. You know, I'm not trying to blame everything on. You know, it's like if you let it happen to you, you're responsible.
8: Can I just add something quickly? Um, yeah, I've been thinking about what people have been saying, especially about going on the ideological offensive, and I think it is. Like really important like at least for me to think about because I think as people have been saying it's sort of um like given the environment that we're in especially for those of us who came out of like these universities and so on I think yeah like I think Johan was saying it's very easy to feel defensive about things you know um and I think even just you know, like thinking about the the telegram from Kim Il-sung um, to Shirley Graham Du Bois on the occasion of uh, WB Du Bois' death. And, um, you know, like, I think one of the things that I, I discovered about Du Bois, um, I think earlier on was uh, his stance during the Korean War, along with Paul Robeson for peace. And I think, yeah, like now, especially, um, like having read that telegram, I think, I just feel like, well, one is that I feel like Korean, yeah, like the Korean people do owe a debt to Du Bois and um, just the fact that at a time when, like there really, it really didn't seem like there was at that point much of a, um, I don't know, like it just felt like there was not really that much room for um, dissent on this question of peace, especially, um with the with the cold war and mccarthyism really beginning to at that point become very strong um i think one is yeah just how much courage it took for robeson dubois um and others especially in the us to take that stand for peace but also i think um more i think going beyond that is you know like especially as like a, a like a korean person who's grown up in the states and you know, the propaganda about North Korea and everything, I think it's very easy to feel um, defensive in that way about, um, you know, like North Korea and like having to react to all the different narratives there are about it. But I think, um, I feel like the way that Du Bois, you know, how he frames this um, question of the search for truth and knowledge um, and freedom for humanity is, you know, the reason why why we study these past freedom movements, whether it's um, from Black Reconstruction to the Russian Revolution, um, to the anti-colonial struggles in Bandung and everything from that is, you know, we're really trying to, I feel like Du Bois is, um, he makes clear, it's like you're, at the end of the day, you're really trying to gain something, like to gain some knowledge that will contribute to um, the universal uplift of humanity, you know, um, and to the freedom of humanity. And I think From that standpoint, like, yeah, it goes so much further beyond like anything like cultural nationalism or chauvinism where it's, you know, like, yeah, like if, if a country like North Korea has contributed something which can help to not just the betterment of like the Korean people but also all of humanity and this struggle for peace, and what it means to reconstruct um, Reconstruct a society after as Doc was saying completely being raised um, down to not even the ground, but almost like lowering the ground of um, of the northern part of Korea during the Korean War, and people having to like basically live in caves and all of that. You know, just horrible, horrible conditions. Um, you know, if there's something that out of that out of that striving and out of that effort and out of the program which was embarked upon by um, yeah, like the government and the people of North Korea after the war. Um, and in the decades following, I think, um, yeah, it's, it's less about being defensive about it's like more like, let's celebrate that, like whether it's in Korea, whether it's in Vietnam, all these countries, um, which have not just had to wage a struggle for political independence, but also economic independence, um, and to create, a, you know, a life world for their people. Um, yeah, like, let's celebrate that and, you know, uphold that tradition, as Emily was saying, that tradition of the oppressed, that tradition of um, the masses, the people, the world, because, you know, it's, it's something which is, you know, drawing the best out of these civilizations, um, and which is contributing to, yeah, like the whole, which can contribute to the knowledge of all of humanity in terms of, yeah, like different paths that people follow um, on the path to freedom. But yeah, I think, like this whole question of um, not being defensive about things, but actually going on that ideological defense, offensive, or, um I feel like another way of putting it is like this uh, pursuit of a positive peace, as as King said, I think is um, really important, especially in these times um, when, yeah, it's very easy to feel defensive about things or to react um, in a very, uh, I don't know, like knee jerk way. So yeah, those are just some of my thoughts um, from what people were saying.
1: You know, one of the things I learned from Henry Winston was that for those of us who live in the most powerful and most arrogant imperialist nation in the world and maybe in human history, our first responsibility, and I think Winston got this a lot from Du Bois, our first responsibility is to fight, quote, our own imperialism. And, you know, you know, I'm reminded that once the United States had gotten the atomic bomb and then hydrogen bombs and once they had used it on an Asian nation, they constantly threatened other nations with complete annihilation. I grew up as a child hearing it, it's, you know, and now, You know, a lot of people repress this in their consciousness and just go on like it didn't happen, like those threats weren't made. Uh, The threat to destroy Korean civilization and every Korean living, they actually made that threat. And then they made it against Vietnam and China. Threats that they never made against a European or white nation. But those words are on our shoulders. It is our, quote, our imperialism. I can't march for Black Lives Matter and not be conscious that the lives of Asian people in Asia matter. This was horrific and a high reflection of white supremacy what they did to Korea and what the Korean people in the North have done to build maybe one of the most advanced societies on the face of the earth. And if you want an example of the civilization state, the actual state of the whole people, it might be in North Korea, highly educated, uh, very healthy, Pyongyang is as sophisticated a city as any in the world and the children and the people are highly educated and the art and culture and music of all of humanity is studied and practiced in North Korea, a country of what 25, maybe 30 million people. It's a miraculous place. And of course, if Korea is united, And if the US military and nuclear weapons are removed from Korea and from the the waters around Korea and from Japan and China and all of this, I mean, the game is up. And we can see that future. The free school, you can see what we have. We have African-Americans, South Asians, and East Asians. And we got more that's not here today. That is humanity in microcosm. That is the revolutionary struggle in microcosm. And each component is mutually responsible to the other. And I'm telling you, you know, when I when I talk to Jeremiah. And I know it's admiration for Korean civilization and for the North where Korean civilization is preserved uncompromised by Western values. You You know, I feel not only that I have a friend but I feel a deep responsibility through him to the Korean people who suffered because of US imperialism. I don't forget that nor do I forget Vietnam and what the United States did there, and how they threatened to use nuclear war or nuclear weapons on Vietnam. You know, so this is this is the future. The world moves forward. There is every reason to be positive. And that's why we must go on the ideological offensive. It's not just idea, but it is an imagination. The world can win to say to people, humanity can win. It's not just us here. Humanity can win. And if humanity wins, we all win. We have no enemies. China is not the enemy of the American people. Korea is not the enemy. Cuba is not the enemy, Africa is not the enemy. And any ideology which foments enemies and divisions among the people is an ideology that acts on behalf of the real enemies of all people.
4: And that real enemy is within. I mean, we can always point outside of ourselves, but really we always, it's like we are our own worst enemies. And at this stage in history, we have all these nuclearized countries, and even in Africa, even in India, you know, you see this turn to war as a solution to resolve um, oppression. But this is, this is not going to work, not in this age when you have these highly nuclearized nations who are just at the drop of a word, they could react. Um, and I think we're in very dangerous territory, um, particularly you know, um, with the partitions of these civilizations, starting with India, Pakistan, Palestine, Bangladesh, East Pakistan and West Pakistan, you have the partition of Korea, you have the partition of Vietnam. These are partitions, the partition of Africa, certainly. And that's just the same strategy of breaking up civilizations um, so that it's easier to go here and there and install this and that. Uh, you know the question of unity and the more weapons we have in this world, that's when we become our own worst enemies. Because something something terrible has to emerge in the human heart to use that as a way of defending offensive has to be something more than that way of looking at secure. Because what we're seeing is massive globally insecurity on an individual, on a personal and a national scale?
13: I, I think what's special, um, sorry, I think what's special about um, this whole question of like the enemy is, you know, King put it best, you know, the man of nonviolence, he said, You know, the number one purveyor of uh, violence is my own government, is the United States. Um, And it is imperialism and it is oligarchy. It is like gentrification that we need to stand up against. Um, I think, something I was thinking about. Um, With it, I think DuVois is very special. And I I mean, uh, I liked Brandon's comment going back um, to, you know, we can be canceled, you know, but history will absolve us um and in a lot of ways i I feel you know especially looking at the the freedom movements especially looking at du bois um that you know history is uh you know at the winds of history rather are at our backs and in our sails you you know um you know when i look at china or when i hear about the great success uh of the russian revolution or of india or you know hearing about the liberation struggles in africa or you know coming back home and uh learning about uh martin luther king jr and learning about you know du bois you know um he shows us and, and 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 there is a deep um you know one is enlivened and one is uh 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 you know one really feels the spirit of revolution um coming out um and no I feel I feel I do I mean I mean it's special Du Bois is bringing together all these these uh, pieces um and yeah no I, I feel it's 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 very special and something I was thinking about um let me see if i can pull it up real quick um yeah 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 it's just it's it's very um uh very emboldening and very like you know when you see a revolution like i i one time i me and emil had watched a documentary about north korea uh my brothers and sisters to the north i don't know if jeremiah you saw it um it was so good and when you see when you see people you know uh when equality is being um uh, instilled um in a a civilization when you see uh, um of people uh, that, you know, where, uh, where you know uh, Huey could say, I feel free. You know, Du Bois could say, I feel free. You know, Paul Robeson's, I feel free. You know what I'm saying? When you see that, you know, you do want to stand up, right? And you do want to stand up for revolution, you know? Um, and you do want to stand up for the truth and you want freedom yourself, you know? Um, yeah, yeah um, bringing in some
0: more comments. Uh, Sophie Hurt writes, I'm thankful for Du Bois for his complete commitment to the oppressed and darker people of the world and humanity as a whole. These other thinkers that are uplifted in the university and social media are lacking the central love for humanity that shines through Du Bois' work throughout his life. I have realized that the framework we have inherited from his scholarship and revolutionary struggle is more fruitful and timeless than any theories that we could study from these isolated academics and activists who come from the self rather than the collective of humanity. Once you know the depth of Du Bois, so much of what you have learned becomes empty and mediocre. But through Du Bois, we can imagine a new vision for the world that embraces the beauty and potential of the common person. Uh, Purba Chatterjee writes, thank you for this beautiful tribute. One of the things that has really influenced my thinking is Du Bois's immortal child. The work we do and the world we build is a legacy we bequeath our children and children's children. This idea is one that ties to the very human instinct thinking about the future in terms of children, but an idea that is repeatedly being undermined in this moment of deep cynicism. It emphasizes the guiding principle of our lives should not be the pursuit of a decadent, wasteful, affluent lifestyle, which is the epitome of making it in today's world. Neither should it be the, uh, the divisive narrow politics of the popular left. Instead, it should be an ideological struggle to build a world that we can be proud to leave behind for the immortal child to come rooted in truth, in peace, in human dignity and brotherhood. Uh, Emil Palmier writes, one thing that Du Bois instilled in me was the interconnected nature of the struggle for humanity. When I hear about the most recent mass shooting at the Olney Transportation Center, the energy crisis taking place in Texas, and the continued aggressive attacks in Afghanistan and Syria, I'm reminded of Du Bois's assessment of democracy being not a privilege, but an opportunity to truly address our conflict in a principled way. Also, his quote regarding our current institutional rule is illuminating. quote, "A system cannot fail those it was never meant to protect." Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's uh, what we have for the comments so far moving towards 115 it's been a uh, moving but you know heavy tribute
1: this (laughs) is a beautiful day yeah definitely uplifting even though we didn't have singing and music like we normally try to do
0: no it really it really was and uh you know everyone Uh, I I mean, I want to thank everybody that found all these great uh, archival materials and letters, so much of which of, I mean, when you talk about Du Bois scholarship in academia, they never talk about any of this stuff. No. So, you know, it's so important that the free school is collecting this information, doing this research, doing these translations. There's so much stuff. There's probably a lot in other languages that remains to be translated regarding Du Bois and the broader uh, Black freedom struggle um, in these various languages. So, I'm excited because I think uh, as we go forward, Du Bois is so deep that we've only scratched the surface of Du Bois, and that has taken us so far. So, I'm very excited to see where uh, we'll be going from here as we get even even deeper into it.
1: I guess next week we're going to continue with Russian America. And I, I suspect you know, a lot of people feel that, well, why are they reading something? It's getting very laborious, uh, but it's really not. I, I, would, uh, I would just urge people to hang in there. I mean, sometimes to read a great work, you read it collectively, because sometimes you can get very bored and distracted trying to read alone. But so we we have this opportunity to read this great work, and uh, so I hope everybody can hang in there, uh, and um, we can all learn together. Uh, so.
0: Right. Yeah. So, uh, with that, uh, thanks everyone who joined us today, and everyone who tuned in. Uh, we and. Uh, please be sure to share this also are going to be uploaded on Spotify and other places where podcasts are available. It's good to spread this knowledge of Du Bois and uh, we'll see everyone uh, next week.